boy, it keeps happening and I am surprised every time. <laughs> Wake up, sheeple. I forgot what we're talking about already. They might get pregnant. <laughs> Welcome to Up Yours Downstairs, the podcast that's quite a tough little thing. I'm Kelly Anigan. And I'm Tom Schneider. We are properly married. We are unfortunately unable to see as much of each other as we would like. That is ex- so extremely true, cousins. Yeah, it, it really is. It's just lucky that we do this podcast. <laughs> right. Because I literally have not seen you this week. <laughs> yeah. Apart from podcast-related activities. Exactly. And sleeping. Yes. And <laughs> I have my eyes closed then, so I can't gaze at your beautiful visage. Well, that's good. That would be weird. <laughs> that would be weird. <laughs> it would be very Edward Cullen of me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Please never associate yourself with Edward Cullen again. I can't stop laughing (laughs) about Edward Cullen. Cousins, do you like Edward Cullen? Do you think that he would be a good boyfriend? If so, we want to hear your story. (laughs) Also, they're doing another Twilight fan fiction turned novel. I don't understand. It's also terrible. Well, I look, Kelly, it worked once. They're going to keep doing it until it stops working. I just know. think that people need to have a higher, you know, barometer for their smut that they want to read. <laughs> I, I don't know what to tell you. I think it's I think it's time we get our Downton Abbey fanfic off the ground and <laughs> start raking in the cash. Thomas and the erotic pen pal. That's right. <laughs> Somebody get me Baron Fellows. <laughs> I'm going to make him a rich man, a richer man. <laughs> really probably going to impoverish him a little bit, hmm. but yeah. Well, <laughs> you got to give a little to get a little. Yeah. Uh, at any rate, do we have any new countries, Tom? We have three new countries. Three new countries. Report. That is correct. My, my. Yes. The three countries are Myanmar, a.k.a. Burma. Wow. Yeah. Well, they've been opening up recently. Oh, so. very cool. Yeah, yeah. And Peru. Mm-hmm. And Pakistan. Pakistan! Yes. We've been waiting for Pakistan. We have been waiting for Pakistan. They were the, the largest country by population that had not yet joined the Up Yours Downstairs uh, family. So, welcome to our Pakistani cousins. Indeed. And that, that now leaves the, uh, Ethiopia as the next largest country that has not yet joined in. All so, right. So, uh, the ball is in your court. Get on Ethiopia. it, Ethiopia. Yeah. Although, obviously, you cannot hear us say this. Yes. It's a real catch-22. <laughs> it is. It is. Uh, next, we have a very exciting announcement to we make. We do. Uh, as you probably noticed today <laughs> when you downloaded this podcast, we are now part of the Bald Move Podcasting Network. Indeed. Uh, you can find them and all of their other podcasts at baldmove.com. They have a ton of great podcasts. We have only been able to listen in bits and pieces. Right. There's one that I'm really excited to go back and listen to that I think our cousins are really going to like uh, called The Because Show. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they pick a topic and they explain it. Yeah. So they did one recently that was like childhood fears and the description referenced the Phantom Tollbooth, which is one of my favorite <laughs> things ever. Yeah. Uh, so they did that. Uh, I feel like they also talked about Legos recently and just sort of the origin of Legos and stuff you can do with them. Yeah. Uh, so that's really cool. There's also a show called Personal Arrogance. Arrogance, like arrogant. Right. Plus an S versus arrogance. Oh, I quality. see. Yes. I don't really know what that's about, <laughs> but I am a fan of arrogance. Right. The quality. 
<laughs> and the people. This is very confusing. Yeah. And then uh, Aaron and Jim, the founders of Bald Move, they have their weekly sort of TV roundup. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's great. They've got The Watching Dead, which is their podcast for The Walking Dead, Night's Watch for Game of Thrones. Uh, they have a Justified podcast that I'm excited about because we've just started watching Justified. Yeah, just barely. So don't tell us anything. Yeah, no spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> People like on the th- season three of Justified, Civil dies. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and they also have a Mad Men Happy Hour, Breaking Good, mm-hmm. their Breaking Bad podcast. Pretty- I think that was their first one, actually. Oh yeah, uh, as far as I can tell. Yeah, um, and the Jersey Shore cast, which I didn't even know Jersey Shore was still on, but maybe it's just the archive. Well, it could be. Yeah, you know they still have some spinoffs going That's on. I true. think, like I, Snooki gave birth to a pickle or something. <laughs> that that is my understanding. Yes, <laughs> pickle makes three. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we're really really excited to be joining that network, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, we'll we'll kind of keep you posted as we start listening to their stuff and let you know uh, what's good. Yeah, yeah. Now it's time for <laughs> telegrams from our cousins. Before we get started, just want to say we have been really busy. I know we keep saying this. All right. You know, we used to try to respond to every telegram that we got. Uh, we're going to try to catch up on some of that correspondence, but we can't guarantee right. that we will respond personally. Yes. Uh, our, our correspondence has gone up. Our free time has gone down. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, but just know we get all of your telegrams. We read them mm-hmm. ourselves, and yes. we really appreciate them. Uh, and just the outpouring of people <laughs> that we got this week that we caused to cry on their long commutes yeah. in their office cubicles uh that was really cool was, i was yeah. i'm always surprised that people have such an emotional well connection, you know, so. our cousins have been united by grief that's true yeah it is very tiring yeah uh, anyway, but thank you. Keep writing in, please. Uh, it's up yours downstairs at gmail.com. Of course, you can also message or talk to us on Facebook and on Twitter. We are at five, the number five, Maggie Smiths. On to the telegrams. First up, we have one from Cousin Kendra who wrote to tell us, telegrams still exist, but nothing I have to say would be worth so much cash. So she sent us a link to americantelegram.com slash handdeliveredtelegrams.html. Uh, it costs like $39 for a same-day telegram, plus 79 cents a word. Whoa. Right? Nothing I have to say is worth that much. I, like, what? Well, also... I- do do not text. <laughs> right, that's free. Yeah, All, like how are you charging that much per word? Like, what kind of ink are you using? Like how <laughs> the blood of innocence? <laughs> uh, that's in a sense. As in in a scent, plural, right. not in a sense, the quality. Uh, yeah, I, I don't, I mean, is it some like weird, you know, hipster Polaroid camera? I mean, you know, I think the answer to that is clearly yes. Manual typewriter, <laughs> but it wasn't a hipstery website. Hmm. It, I don't, it was like for old people, I guess. I guess so. But like, you know, we should start, we should start hipstertelegram.com. I mean, if they're pulling down that kind of money. That's true, actually. <laughs> we can charge a, you know, a buck, buck fifty yeah. per word. Yeah, well, we could promise to print them out on manual typewriters. <gasps> oh my god! 
uh, listen, we have to stop this podcast <laughs> and go to the patent office. We are going to be so wealthy <laughs> from all of these things we've just come up with. <laughs> yeah. Thomas and the erotic pen pal. Hipster, hipstergrams, right? Hipstergrams. People will get confused because they'll think it's about Instagram. Oh man. No, we got it. We'll have like, uh, telegraph delivery uniforms. Uh huh. Yeah. 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 We need to do some research. Oh man. We're going to be rolling in it. (laughs) Thank God because this podcast is, uh, really sucking us dry. (laughs) Uh, anyway, thank you, cousin Kendra, both for the idea and the, uh, knowledge that these exist we'll post the link on the facebook page if i don't forget right (laughs) note to self don't forget to post that link we'll see how that goes feel free to bother me if i don't (laughs) next we have a telegram from cousin kathy who writes dearest cousins the emotion you both unabashedly shared during the last recap was very much appreciated it was comforting for those of us who are the only member in our household who feel like we lost a sweet spirit because a fictional character passed on are we crazy perhaps wait i just heard the dressing gong later cousin kathy cousin kathy that's great if you did really hear a dressing gong you might want to get that checked yeah it could be tinnitus yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh no but yeah it's i've always been very upset when fictional characters die mm-hmm. i remember when uh harry potter and the order of the phoenix came out and i hated that book <laughs> like i hated it so much yeah but at the end uh also if you haven't read that book by now this this we've reached the statute of limitations right. on that. Yeah. But when Sirius Black died at the end, I sobbed for like a half an hour. Yeah. Easy. And I was at my parents' house and my dad was like, you know it's just a book, right? And I'm like, you don't understand. You and his only family. Yeah. Yeah, no, this isn't like back when I read Lord of the Rings for the first time and, and Gandalf dies, mm-hmm. I just had to put the book down and like I didn't know, like, my world had been shattered. Yeah. Like, I couldn't, I couldn't go on. I was like, what's, what's happening here? No, but I think that's really cool when an author or, you know, mm-hmm. a, a television writer. Yeah. I guess they're the same kind of. <laughs> right. Uh, can make you have that kind of connection, you know, yeah. and, and, you know, the actors and. Yeah. It's a little bit more complex, complex with a TV show. Right. Right. Next, we have a telegram from Cousin Sahar. Dear Cousins, Kelly and Tom, I've been listening to your podcast since it started. I am a Boris Gorn Swords fan who crossed over. And since I'm a lazy podcast listener, have never written in, in spite of the fact that I thoroughly enjoy listening. I'm writing in today because I have something to admit. In previous episodes that brought you guys to tears, I was always wondering why. Probably because I'm cold and dead inside. After all, it's a sometimes poorly written drama. How emotional can I be expected to get? I would think these thoughts smugly while sipping tea at my desk. However... I watched last week's episode on the floor of my living room, weeping profusely, particularly watching Carson tell everyone Thomas's reactions and Carson's reaction just got me. It was so, so sad. One thing I have particularly liked this season is the parallels between Carson and Lord Grantham in terms of their fatherliness toward the girls. It's clear that Carson sees Mary, Edith, and Sybil as daughters of his own. The Crawley family is his and explains why he clings so tightly to the norms of his state life and the old way. I recovered from this emotional breakdown and knew that there would be tears when I tuned in this week, but I made the mistake of listening at work. Your reactions had me dabbing at my eyes and surreptitiously blowing my nose. How could this be? It seems I am not as cold and dead inside as I had imagined. A bit more verbose than planned, but I was moved to write in. Keep up the good work. I've learned and laughed a lot. And now cried, damn it. Best regards, Cousin Sahar. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, again, that's awesome. Yeah. And, you know, we're, we're so honored to have uh, taught you how to feel. 
<laughs> Her tears grew three sizes that day. Uh, not that we don't also approve of smugly drinking tea. That's yeah, also we, always acceptable. That's what I do every day from 9 to 9.15 <laughs> while I watch Black Fraser. <laughs> it's a deep cut. It is a deep cut. I'm pouring one out for 30, wa- for 30 Rock right now. Oh, man. Tell me about I it. I mean a cup of tea. <laughs> I can't drink it till 9. <laughs> Next, we have a telegram from Cousin Judith, who writes, Hello, Cousins Kelly and Tom. I just found your podcast a couple of weeks ago when searching for podcasts on my favorite shows. I love the pump and snark that you two bring to my ears while working on boring tasks at work. Thank you. Just like you, I'm an impatient American, so I've already seen all of season three and Journey to the Highlands and cannot wait to hear what you guys think. Right now, I'm up to the podcast on the first episode of season three. On a previous podcast, you were discussing Patrick's amnesia, or the great pretender debate. I personally think that the Titanic did not strike an iceberg, but was in fact crashed into by a Silurian ship rising to the surface of the ocean. I think all the survivors were then flashed with an early beta version of a neuralizer by agents of Torchwood, who then accompanied the survivors to the Americas, rebelled against the established British oppression of Torchwood, and lack of success thereof to rid the Earth of all alien invaders and failure to find the Doctor, and set up their own operation entitled Men in Black. That's my crackpot theory, and I'm sticking to it. Sincerely, Lady Judith of the County of Worcester, Massachusetts, a.k.a. the Polish Blonde. Polish Blonde. That is my favorite crackpot theory ever. That is... It's phenomenal. It all fits together, man. I know. (laughs) Wake up, sheeple. Uh, yeah, I, I really do like that. And yeah. it would explain the presence of one Harriet Jones. Oh, yeah, it would. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. And finally, we have an email that came with the subject line, in defense of Sir Philip Thingamy. Oh, my. Uh-huh. It's from Cousin Lisa. Dear Cousins, greetings. I am a brand new member of the Up Yours Downstairs Cousinry. Began downloading episodes two weeks ago and have already finished the season three coverage to date, as well as a hefty chunk of the archives. I'm pregnant, so I haven't been sleeping especially well of late, and I find the podcast to be just the thing to calm the nerves and help while while away those queasy pre-dawn hours. I especially enjoyed your recent recap of the heart-rending Series 3, Episode 5. Since it's a plot point of some personal relevance at this phase of my life, I did a bit of research on the 20th century history of preeclampsia, and I thought I'd share the results, mostly from an interesting recent article, Mandy Bell's A Historical Overview of Preeclampsia Eclampsia. Clearly written by a medical professional rather than than an historian, but still has some useful details. Apparently, while many of the key diagnostic features of preeclampsia eclampsia, including proteinuria, were familiar from the mid-19th century onward, the treatment of the disease was still very much a subject of contention well through the early decades of the 20th century. During that period, according to the linked article, physicians in Germany and the Netherlands advocated for aggressive management, e.g. prompt abdominal or vaginal cesarean cesarean section. But the associated maternal mortality rates were extremely high. As a result, a more conservative management gained popularity and was widely used up until the 1930s. Proponents of the conservative school of treatment argued that eclampsia was primarily a convulsive disorder and that aggressive or stressful treatment of the patient was likely to aggravate convulsions. Instead, patients should be kept quiet with no unnecessary interventions beyond sedation, pain management as needed, until delivery progressed naturally. 
it would appear, based on that information, that while Sir Philip Tapsell was certainly wrong to Miss Sybil's preeclampsia early on, his advice for managing it thereafter was perfectly reasonable and consistent with acceptable with accepted medical practice at the time. Certainly after pre-labor had already started, there was a pretty solid case, according to contemporary theory, against Dr. Clarkson's preferred approach of rushing a fragile paraeclamptic woman out to a hospital for an ultra-risky C-section that would probably only move up the natural birth by a couple of hours anyway. Maggie Smith, as always, was right. It was a terrible tragedy, but not one for which anyone was obviously at fault. I must say, in light of this info, I'm disappointed with Fellow's treatment of the medical side of things in this episode. Seems as though he took a very complex situation and tried to milk it either for presentist lulls, ha-ha, old-timey medicine sucked, or for cheap class drama, aristocratic physicians, what twits, am I right? I haven't seen the latest episode, but I hope poor Lord Grantham gets forgiven at some point for his retrospectively poor decision-making. Thank you both for a delightful podcast, and no more at present from yours very truly, Cousin Lisa. Well, congratulations, Cousin Lisa. That right there is more than I was able to find about eclampsia online, Mm -hmm. Uh, and clearly more than Tom was able to find about medicine in general. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Uh, No, that's fascinating. And I think, you know, in this next episode that we're about to recap, some of this gets addressed. Right, right. Um, But it always baffles me how poor even now medicine's understanding of the female body is yeah you know there's so many problems that are you know quote-unquote female problems Mm -hmm. that are just they're like oh that's a syndrome that's just a collection of symptoms Uh, we're gonna go you know prescribe some viagra to people Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um but even that it's just it's crazy to me yeah and and i guess you know there's a case to be made now in light of the events of the episode we just saw that sort of what lord grantham i think was going for was was basically that Sir Philip Tapsell, he wasn't even wrong. He was just such a dick uh-huh. that he, you know, he caused problems just by his attitude and his arrogance. Well, it wasn't th- anything about his medical knowledge per se. Uh-huh. It was just his his behavior. Well, and I mean, he did not at any point until she was in death throes mm-hmm. acknowledge that she had eclampsia. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess that's my only, you know, I you know, I don't think that Cousin Lisa is saying that he is completely off the hook here. But I think right. his position's slightly indefensible in the sense that he, at no point, despite all of the symptoms, right. he refused right. to admit that that was what was going on. True, true. Because, I mean, you know, it would then Yeah, because he would wasn't be... making the argument that she may have eclampsia, but either way, the safest thing is to stay here. He was saying she doesn't have exactly. it. Yeah. And, yeah. and adamantly sticking to that. Yeah, so. that's true. Congratulations, Cousin Lisa. Yes. Uh, enjoy being Cousin of the Week. It lasts a week. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All right. So uh, let's go ahead and get into the uh, the, the recap. Yeah, let's, let's do, do it. it. Yeah. We start... We start with a shot of Lord Grantham seeing all the funeral guests out. Some of them are leaving by by car. Some of them are, are walking. Everybody looks appropriately very upset. Yes. And, uh, you know, sad time. But I will say, Lord Grantham looks sharp in he his morning. He should be sad more often. Yeah. He, I, I don't know what it is, but just the the black tie yeah. just yeah. completely, it looked just way better on mm-hmm. him to me. So, yeah. In the drawing room... Uh, Branson is just, you know, staring off into space and, and Matthew says that he knows everybody is saying it, but they really would like to help if there's anything they can do. And Branson says that he's past help. Mm-hmm. 
Which, you know, that's a pretty standard thing to say. Right. Well, because it's like, whenever people are grieving, they always want to kind of, you know, everybody wants to kind of jump on that bandwagon. But it's like, you're in shock still at that point. You can't. Yeah. You can't see any way out of this horrible place that you're in. Right. And it's just, you know, it's just sort of the same, everybody goes through the same sort of almost ritual when, when there's a death like this. Yeah. That everybody just sort of goes through the same roles and Mm -hmm. it just, you know, there's nothing to do but, but wait it out. Yep. Yeah. Lord Grantham walks into the drawing room and says, or I guess it's not the drawing room. It's the, whatever McGee's parlor is. Oh, okay. Because he says yeah. that the Southerks were looking for her to say goodbye, but she was holed up in there with her embroidery pillows mm-hmm. in her time of, of The sorrow. only thing that can bring her comfort. <laughs> They're oh, really poofy. <laughs> oh, embroidered cats. You're the only things I'll ever love again. <laughs> uh, Isabel stands up to leave and she says, to let her know if there's anything she can do to help. Which she says that to somebody every day of her life. Yeah. I'd really like to help. If there's anything I can do, get out. <laughs> <laughs> we don't need your kind of help. Uh, the Dowager Countess says that she'll go as well to save the show for getting the car out twice. And then Lord Grantham is like, oh, you can both stay for dinner. I'm like, dude, they just said they were leaving. Don't don't be like this. But I guess he's just... just being polite. I know. Uh, but the Dowager Countess says she doesn't want to stay, that uh, grief makes one so terribly tired. Mm-hmm. And she kisses McGee goodbye and tells her, you know, now that it's over, get some rest. Branson continues to just stand there. Yeah. Just completely yeah. in shock. And then McGee wonders aloud if it's ever truly over when one loses a child. Yeah. And uh, in my experience, it is not. Yeah. It is not ever over. Yeah. Down in the servants' hall... Thomas is just, you know, sort of staring at the table. Yeah, he's like doing the Branson light. Yeah, yeah. And Alfred says, come on then, cheer up. A long face won't help anything. Neither will an ugly face. Believe me, I know. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, But Anna tells Alfred to to leave him be. And uh, (laughs) young Jimmy Kent... Oh, God. uh, says ...says that Thomas's grief speaks well for Lady Sybil, and Thomas says thank you thank you for that while grabbing his hand and it's just because this isn't even beyond sort of reflexively part of his campaign to seduce him he just you know there's many times in this episode that they'll point out where just everybody's inability to physically comfort each other Mm -hmm. because of the you know society that they're Mm -hmm. in is really kind of underlined in this episode well yeah because i mean this is not him being kind of creepy right this is just needing human contact yeah time of sorrow yeah of course though you know jimmy is then interpreting it through the prism of the creepy all the previous which you can't blame him for right right he's justified uh, i'm just like oh thomas it's so he's so barking up the wrong tree i know where he's going i've been there (laughs) myself yeah Oh, this is just going to end so badly. Yeah. I feel like we're going to be crying in the next episode or two because I just feel like something terrible is going to happen to Thomas. It's It may just well be. Something really bad. Yeah, yeah. Over at Crawley House, Ethel asks if Isabel would like her supper late in the dining room, but Isabel just wants to eat quickly at her desk and have an early night. And Ethel asks how the service was, and Isabel says it was very nice, but you know how it is when a young person dies. Mm-hmm. Uh, horrible, in case you're wondering. Yeah. It's awful. Yeah. Um, and then Ethel says that there's nothing worse than losing a child, clearly thinking about 
giving right. up Charlie. And I just kind of... Well, by the way... He's, not dead. Yeah, he's fine. He has a teddy bear. He has <laughs> a very awesome teddy bear. And I do... Uh, I do hate it when people try to appropriate other... And I don't think Ethel's coming at it from a bad place. Right, And I mean, right. it's like, you like, know... It's not, it's that not as egregious as it could be. still fresh for her. And, yeah. but, but it's just like, come on, dude. It, it just... Well, I think it was just kind of shoehorned into that yeah. scene a little bit. That's all. I think that was actually a, a Baron Fellows touch of like, hey, <laughs> did you forget that she gave up her son? Because she did. Yeah. <laughs> Remember that? Huh? Huh? Uh... <laughs> Anyway, Isabel says she wants to give a lunch party for McGee and the girls to kind of draw McGee out of herself. I'm like, it's been a day. <laughs> I mean, maybe that's how they rolled in the 1920s. But, <laughs> yeah. you know, just give her give her a second. Isabel is here to help Kelly, <laughs> and she will not let anybody stop her from helping. <laughs> uh, so Ethel thinks this is a great idea. And she's like, oh, I could cook something special. But uh, Isabel has taken a sip of what looks like consomme. Yeah. Uh, and makes a face and she says, well, we don't have to decide anything yet. And I'm like, can you and not like, just have a conversation with her and be like, can we get someone in here to teach you how to cook? I was like, don't you like the soup? I couldn't find any chicken broth, so I used vinegar. I hope it's okay. <laughs> no, I'm like, what is she doing? I know. And it, this has been going on for such a long time. <laughs> yeah. You know, she used to have Molesley and Mrs. Bird. Can you not hire in? She was going to have two people anyway. Mm -hmm. Apparently, it's so hard to find servants. Yeah. But uh, anyway, Isabel, you're a (laughs) dum-dum. You're a dum-dum, and I don't like your face. (laughs) There. I said it. There. (laughs) Now, quit offering me help. I don't need it. Not from you and not from anyone. (laughs) Uh, Up in Mary's room... Is this still the same room she used to have? I think I it's her dressing room. Okay. Well, the I girls just all if... used to, I think, share a dressing room. Right. But it looks like that first one. Yeah, it does. That we remember uh, the unhappiest family ever to grace Olin Mills. Oh, <laughs> right, right. That yeah. room. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> In any case, Mary is getting undressed or dressed. I forget. Undressed. It's, undressed. it's nighttime. Yeah. Um, and she's talking to Anna saying that she can't understand why Bates hasn't been set free yet. Um, we want him to be free. Why isn't he? <laughs> yes. But Mary or Murray still has to go see Mrs. Bartlett and uh, get her to testify. And Anna worries that even with that testimony, that still won't be enough to overturn the verdict. Uh, and Mary's like, look, I'm not saying it'll all be done by Tuesday, but it's going to work itself Which out. Which must be a phrase that people use because it's happened yeah. so many times this yeah. season. So, uh, well, maybe we'll start working that phrase into our own lives. Yeah. That'll well, be fun. It's not all going to be done by next Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> working it into our conversations, I mean. Right. It's going to be hard work. <laughs> well, <laughs> we, and we're not going to stick with it. Probably so. not. Yeah. I've forgotten what we're talking about already. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> um, uh, Anna begins to cry. And Mary asks what's wrong. And Anna says, I just realized I'm stuck with Bates forever. <laughs> As are we all, Anna. As are we all. I thought he was going to get hanged. (laughs) I would never have married him. I was going to get all that money. (laughs) Uh, No, in fact, she is crying because Mary had said that we'll all be happy or something like that when Bates is back. And Anna is crying because that Mary was so nice to say we, um, which is dumb. (laughs) Um, And... (laughs) 
we're so articulate about this episode. We're like, that's dumb. <laughs> yeah. That's good. And Mary once again says that Bates' freedom will be the good news that they've all been waiting for, which this is a real problem in this episode in particular. Mm-hmm. The idea that any of them care about Bates' freedom relative to the death of their sister slash daughter yeah. slash wife. Yeah. Well, Branson never gives uh, Yeah. Branson's like, who? <laughs> right. Oh, that guy? Yeah. Is he still a thing? <laughs> um, yeah, but Didn't that's... he used to have a limp? <laughs> I like the idea of, like, it being, like, very Twilight zone Branson's, like, calling out all the continuity errors on Bates. He's like, don't you remember? He had a cane. O'Brien kicked it out from under him. Send for Dr. Clarkson. He's mad. <laughs> <laughs> well... It's clear that he needs a full frontal lobotomy. (laughs) (laughs) Mrs. Crawley, would you be helpful and assist me in removing the frontal lobe? (laughs) Oh, yes. Yes, of course. I'd be happy to help. (laughs) Scene. (laughs) Lord Grantham comes into what used to be his bedroom. Uh, and he, he says to McGee, I thought I'd move back in here tonight. You know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. <laughs> Row. Uh, she, however, is still in full bitch mode. Yeah. And I like this, actually, because mm-hmm. you can really see how much Mary is her daughter in this. Mm, yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. Mary is just like this all the time. Oh, right. Well, Mary was like, well, when Mama wants her way, she's a giant bitch i'm just going to do that all the time and have my way every day yeah possibly except the thing is though i think uh if you asked mary she would say i'm nothing like her no, no, nothing no. but that's yeah i agree yeah, i mean yeah. i think it's very subconscious yeah yeah you know as someone who has realized recently <laughs> that i am turning exactly into my mother and also mom quit listening <laughs> right i swear to god it's just not gonna end well <laughs> But yeah, I mean, it's just, yeah, it's, yeah. it's that whole oldest daughter thing. Right, you right, know? right. Um, anyway, so she's reading a book and she's like, no, I'm not ready. You can't sleep here. And yeah. he, he tries to apologize and she says, oh, Robert, let's not go through it all again. Uh, and then immediately goes through it all again. Right. Which, all right, fair play, McG. Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's, that's a bitch move. Yeah, well, she's like, we're going through it all again on my yeah. terms. Yeah, so she, and I mean, it's stone cold. It is. She says, oh, you know, you listened to Sir Philip Tapsell because he's knighted and he has a practice in Harley Street and he let all of that nonsense block the last chance that they had to save Sybil's life. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it is, it's just horrible. Yeah. It's really bad. Yeah. And, and he just, you know, he tries to apologize again. And I think he said something like, I miss her just as much as you well, do. He, said, he says, do you think I miss her any yes. less than you do? And she says, I should think you miss her more <laughs> since it's your fault. Yeah. Uh, then he goes out in the hallway. And I don't think that Hugh Bonneville is very good at crying. I don't think so either. Because I really, really wish that he was. Because, because I that think- would have been so powerful to just see. Because we've never... Because mm-hmm. they just kind of took him off screen after yeah. Sybil died. They were like, oh, you can't cry. Yeah. All right, Hugh, you're sitting this one out. Um, and, you know, and he, he kind of bends over and, like, bites his knuckle. Yeah. And I'm like, what yeah. is this? Shakespeare in love? Like, right. are, you a, are you a young boy playing a woman? <laughs> like, I don't understand. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I do think that it's more Hugh, Bonneville, Hugh Bonneville's shortcomings or, you know, in a bit, you know, lack of ability here. But, I, you know, it's also you can play it as 
you know, he's just had his ability to, to emote. That's like, true. Just kind of beat, probably literally beaten out of him. Yeah. He was yeah. beaten at Eaton, I bet. <laughs> it's probably true. Uh, anyway, I mean, it's still a powerful scene. It, it is. It just, it could have been yeah. a little more oomphy. Yeah. Like, Hugh Bonneville's not terrible at any time. Oh, no, no, no. But yeah. we, we wish we could see a bit more from him. Indeed. Down at breakfast, Matthew asks how the baby is doing. Baby! <laughs> and Thomas says that he envies the baby because it doesn't know a thing about it. Man, that is what I think every time I see babies. Yeah. But then I remember that I can drink. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and that's how you become a baby. <laughs> in practice. It's true. <laughs> and Edith... Who is up and about and being helpful. She is so great this season. She is. I literally, I can't believe how much I like her. Yeah. And you know, one thing that I don't know that there's another appropriate place to mention this, Mm -hmm. but I've been wanting to mention the last couple of weeks because we were saying, um, you know, that it was kind of upsetting for Mary both at the wedding and at Sybil's death to be like, oh yeah, we're not actually going to get along any better in the future. Uh Uh-huh. But what we've forgotten in our newfound crush on Edith is that she <laughs> did kind of tell the Turkish ambassador oh, right. that Mr. Pamuk died in Mary's bed. And you right. know what? I'm a Scorpio. I would never forgive and forget that. <laughs> I never would. Yeah. I don't know what Mary's sign is, but <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, because that's that's horrible. That is that horrible. Is, that is. On spec, much, much worse than dashing Edith's hopes with Sir Anthony Strallen in the first season. Right. Which I I also was upset by when it happened. But then again, I was like, oh, wait a minute. She did literally ruin your life. Yeah. Although that's, I mean, it's kind of, it's kind, I mean, it's on the same scale. I mean, it's both that's true. destroying your chance at, at a marriage. Yeah. So, well, but in oh, any case. Thank God women can, like, go to college and stuff now. <laughs> yeah, it indeed. It seems so freaking petty and pointless speaking of women's advancement edith, <laughs> uh but yeah edith says that they need to think about getting a nurse uh because mrs rose will leave once the baby is weaned which how quickly are they trying to wean this baby i you know i i had the same thought but i'm like you know it wouldn't surprise me that the answer is extremely quickly well, and that may just yeah. be how it was well I, I mean i don't know i know at least you know like from the 50s you know and at least the early 60s conventional wisdom was that you know bottle feeding was healthier mm-hmm. um i mean they would have been feeding the baby actual milk right versus you know formula right but i wonder uh, well i guess i could have looked that up then yeah eh? well maybe maybe next time that baby's well, gonna be yeah, I was around gonna say, hopefully that baby's gonna be around yeah. so we'll talk about that baby next week <laughs> yeah oh baby <laughs> baby branson <laughs> Branson doesn't think they need to look for a nurse because he will be leaving as soon as he can find a job. Edith and Matthew say that there's no rush, but Lord Grantham, as so sagely predicted, sees this as a solution mm-hmm. and is like, no, he's right. He needs to start making a life for himself. Edith says, you know, yes, he does, but not right away. Mm-hmm. Literally, um, they just buried her uh, yesterday. Right. And but it's, it, it's, it's understandable for him to kind of be not thinking clearly about the timeline. Yeah. Because again, he's in shock, he's grieving, right. he's got a lot going on. But I but mean, for Lord Grant, you know, you gotta you but, have to be compassionate. Be like, look, dude, let's just chill out on this whole Agreed, but at the same time, I think that there's this head of household thing mm-hmm. going on between Lord Grantham and Branson. Like mm-hmm. I think they I mean I do think they actually are on the same page on this issue. They're both like, you know, you don't like living in our house. Mm-hmm. 
you want to be out there providing for your family on your own, on your own terms. Also, we don't like you and your filthy Catholic ways. Right. That's certainly there as well. But I think there is a, you know, that, that Lord Grantham does actually think that Branson will be happier if he, if he goes out and mm-hmm. strikes out on his own. Yeah. Um, which I actually I am on the same page there. Right. I mean, why on earth would he stay there? Oh, right, right. Oh, I wouldn't stay there. Yeah. Um. I mean, that's that's a whole question, really. Like, you know, Sybil doesn't want him no. to go backwards, but you know, who says what's forward and backwards? That's true. Well, yeah. and it's like, you know, it's just it's it's just one of those things because you know I know that there have been people, like in the history of humanity, <laughs> uh, you know, who who are widowed. And then, you know, they they still remain part of the family right, that they married right, into. Right. But, I mean, just as often, right. you know, you're like, nope, yeah. done. I mean, yeah. if you have kids, it's a little different. Right, and, right. You know, and they do. But, I mean, you know, this is a brand new thing. Yeah. You know? I mean, I do have to think that he's going to stick around because, once again, the show is called Downton Abbey, uh-huh. not Liverpool Body and Damage Repair. I would so watch that. <laughs> oh, could there be like a like a body receptionist? <laughs> I think In the ha- tradition of doll tear sheet? <laughs> I, I think there would have to be. I think it's British law. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Workplace comedy. That I'm- could be the pilot. <laughs> you know, the, the inspector comes in and says, uh, your receptionist ain't body enough. <laughs> this is a body shop. <laughs> you need a board. <laughs> Boy, we are really having fun with homophones today. <laughs> are we, we not? We are. Because the bod, B-A-W-D, versus right. body. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Oh. oh, the English language. Oh my, it is the worst. What joy you bring. Um, Back at breakfast. Uh, <laughs> Ida says they, in the meantime, the immediate thing is to see to the christening and asks what he wants to name the baby. And Branson says that he wants to name her Sybil. Lord Grantham looks kind of off-put by this Mm -hmm. and asks if he thinks it will be too painful. Uh, But he says it will be, but he wants to be reminded of Sybil every day. Mm -hmm. Uh, Edith says that she'll go see Mr. Travis. And he says, why do you want to see Mr. Travis? And she's like, to set a date. And he says his daughter's going to be Catholic. And Lord Grantham, like, puts his cup down and then doesn't say anything, stand up, says that you should go about his morning, and leaves the room. This is literally the most mature thing he's ever done. Ever. In the I was history so, of the series. I was so surprised. I know. That, and it was, I mean, it was really... This, this is a, the least uh, uncomfortable meal I think that's ever happened to Justin Abbey. <laughs> yeah. And Lord Grantham really does seem to be learning a bit of a lesson here like it, yeah it's not like a dramatic sea change but he seems to have gotten a little bit off of his high horse in this mm, episode yeah. and started to recognize that other people's opinions exist he's and... on more of a squat little pony <laughs> true enough <laughs> um yeah and you know once again Edith is so out of the loop yeah no one ever tells her anything yeah yeah Ever. Yeah. And it's true. It's, God, that's got to be annoying for her. <laughs> yeah. Because she's like, listen, I'm the one with all the time on my hands. I can fix things. Yeah. And it's interesting because. I worked on a farm once. Yeah. I would have. Somehow I would have thought that Sybil would have been closer to Edith than to Mary. 
You know, but that All- doesn't seem to have been the case because everything yeah. we've seen in this season has been Sybil and Mary, Sybil and Mary. Right, right. And it's also true that even if that was the case, if Sybil was asking somebody to fight for her after she died, she'd go with Mary yeah, just because well, Mary yeah. has the position to fight for exactly. her. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the gumption. Yeah. Out in the street. <laughs> uh Ethel accosts Mrs. Patmore. Yeah. Mrs. Patmore's just like, <laughs> jauntily walking along. Yeah. And then Ethel's like, Mrs. Patmore! Yeah. Mrs. Patmore! And the, the body language is so great. It's like when, when somebody, uh, is trying to hit you up for money and you accidentally show interest in their story. Yeah. And you're like slowly edging toward them, <laughs> but like keeping your entire body turned away. Yeah. 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 You're like, I, I, I have to be able to bolt. Oh, <laughs> right. So Ethel asks for help with the lunch party uh, that Isabel is ill-advisedly throwing. Right. With her cook who can't cook. <laughs> right. Um, and, you know, she says to Mrs. Patmore that, you know, she wants to do something special. And, you know, can Mrs. Patmore come over and help her? And Mrs. Patmore is like, well, you know Carson has forbidden me to come over there, right? <laughs> and she's like, won't you be kind? You know, won't you help us show our sympathy. Yeah. Um, you know, she says that Mrs. Crawley shouldn't be punished because Mrs. Patmore is afraid of being corrupted. And Mrs. Patmore's <laughs> like, I'm not afraid you're going to corrupt me. <laughs> yeah. It's just I'm not allowed to go there. Right, right. <laughs> but Mrs. Patmore has clearly never been hesitant to break the rules at Crawley House specifically. Uh-huh, that's so, true. Yeah. So, yeah. So she, uh... she... She knows how to sneak down there. <laughs> Jauntily. Jauntily, Yes. Uh, in murder prison. Boo! <laughs> it's, it's circle walking hour at the prison. <laughs> so they're all walking in a circle. Let me, let me just tell you something. <laughs> to any television writers out there, if you realize that for most of a season, one of your major characters spends most of his time literally walking around in circles, you may have gone wrong somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Lord. And he's not somewhere on the autism spectrum. <laughs> right. Because that might be interesting. It could be. Um, but yeah, uh, things happen while they walk around in circles. Stop talking! <laughs> Neither... No, literally stop. We're not talking yeah. about this scene. I'm, yeah. I'm freaking done. Neither Bates nor this plot get anywhere. Moving on. Lord Grantham has stalked outside where Mary's just sitting on a bench reading a book. People that's... are really reading. Oh, I yeah, wonder that's if true. they're reading scripture, actually. Oh, that's an interesting point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But it's out under the conversation tree where yes, many where... conversations have happened before. <laughs> and he, he asks Mary if she knows Branson wants the baby to be a left footer. Yes. Which was a phrase we had not heard before, despite being left footers ourselves. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, and it apparently derives from, in Ireland, for no particular reason, two different styles of shovel were commonly used. One was commonly used in the Catholic part, which had uh, footrests on both sides of the, the shaft. And the one that was used in the Protestant part only had one, and it was on the right side. So people in the south side used their left foot to shove their spade into the soil, and people in the Protestant part used their right foot, hence the term. Very odd mm-hmm. that that's... But, but you hey. Know, these things happen. That's how slang happens, Tom. Yeah. Also, if you Google it, you'll find some odd discussion threads about the term. It was because it was some like Yahoo Answers type site, uh-huh. but it wasn't Yahoo Answers. But if well, you, d- that sucks because Yahoo Answers is infallible. <laughs> right. 
Uh, but there was like one really long answer that was by a historian, and then four other just like random <laughs> weird people who were just mashing their keyboard <laughs> with their fists. Essentially, yes. <laughs> Uh, anyway, Lord Grantham says there hasn't been a Catholic Crawley since the Reformation. And Mary reminds him that baby Sybil is a Branson, not a Crawley. Mm-hmm. And he says that the only thing that will, you know, give her any advantages in life is her noble blood, which is, yeah, it's going to be less true for this generation. Right. But it's, it's certainly something that it would, it's not, he's not wrong to think that even uh, if I just realized something horrible, dude. Baby Sybil's going to come of age right as World War II starts. Yep, that is true. Mm, baby Sybil. No. Uh, Start drinking now. <laughs> <laughs> They're weaning her so she'll drink whiskey, right? That's how the <laughs> Irish do it. Yeah. I mean, she's she'll even be just too old to get sent off into the country to find a magical wardrobe. I know. Oh. It's a bummer. He also says that it's ghoulish to name the baby after Sybil. And I think it was Alyssa Rosenberg, the Think Progress culture blogger, mentioned Uh in her recap that, you know, he probably would not have batted an eye. Or maybe it was a commenter. I don't remember. Well, somebody. Somebody out there, possibly on Yahoo Answers, (laughs) said, you know, he would not have batted an eye if if it had been a boy. You know, and there had been yeah. a male honorific. I mean, I don't, you know. If, right, right. If for some reason Branson had died in childbirth <laughs> <laughs> and Sybil was still alive, <laughs> Sybil just like choked him to death, uh, you know, and, and she wanted to name him Thomas, mm-hmm. you know, that's so common. But right. For people to name a, a girl baby after the mother is, is very uncommon. It's true. Because even I was like, that's weird. Yeah. Well, and I think, uh, you know, I think A, it's Branson's decision, and if he wants Sybil, then that's fine. B, I wouldn't do that, and it does seem weird to me. Well, and... I would never name a baby after you. I right. Would, I would. I just. I, right. It, you know? It's this. Yeah. To me, it's not a gender. I don't like thing either names. way. I think it's weird. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway, Mary disagrees that it's ghoulish, and then just huffily goes back to reading her book. She's <laughs> like, "This conversation is over." Yeah. At Crawley House. Isabel insists to Ethel that she not cook for the luncheon uh, and just buy a ham and make a light salad. Ethel says that she'd like to make an effort, but Isabel says, like, you know, let's just play it safe on this Can one. Isabel does not have an honest conversation with her. Like, you know I... what? Your cooking is bad and you should feel bad. <laughs> right. I, she Agreed. just It's like she's trying – like – Whenever Isabel tries to be nice about something that displeases her, she winds up being twice as mean uh, yeah, as no, she would true. be if she just said what she meant. Yeah. And, I uh, I mean, are you sure Ethel couldn't screw up a light salad at this point? Yeah, really. <laughs> like, uh... I, I made it with rags. <laughs> <laughs> Down at the Dower House, the Dowager Countess asks uh, what Lord Grantham's plan for the child is. Yes. Especially since if Branson takes her, his influence will govern her upbringing. His dirty, dirty influence. <laughs> Once again, uh, this is a patriarchal society, right? Like, it's his baby. Yeah. It's his baby. It it is his baby, uh, but don't expect Lord Grantham to see otherwise. I I know. Uh, anyway, uh, she asks what McGee thinks about everything, right. and Lord Grantham says that she doesn't say much, especially not to him. And you know, the Dowager Countess kind of susses out that she's still really upset with him, and that you know she's really not speaking much to him right. or letting her him go in her uh, happy pants <laughs> place. 
Is that is that what they called it back then? Yeah. The Happy Pants Place? The Happy Pants Place. Oh, good. Yeah. That's so. a fun fact that you can all use to impress your friends. And your lovers. <laughs> Uh, anyway, the Dowager Countess doesn't necessarily agree with McGee's assessment of the situation, but mm-hmm. she says she won't criticize a grieving mother, which I think is a very diplomatic approach to the situation, frankly. Oh, yeah. And Lord Grantham thinks that McGee is also grieving for her marriage. And I don't know. I, I feel that it's not pitched quite at that level. So I don't know if it's just supposed to be him sulking or if right. it's genuinely supposed to be this really difficult thing. Well, I think uh, given the amount of time they spent in Downton Abbey, it's probably hard for them to tell between real <laughs> crises and just sort of faked up ones. Well, and, you know, this is sort of jumping ahead, but this conflict gets resolved so quickly. And that's been, you know, the biggest criticism from our corner and many other corners is that mm-hmm. can you not let these people live with a conflict for longer than a two-episode arc? Right. No, I, I totally agree. Because and I, a lot I, of these are really compelling conflicts. Like, this isn't like Lavinia, right, you know? Right. That was an example of an arc that nobody wanted to go on that long. Yeah. But this is just silly. I mean, this is a, you know, it could be this real watershed moment in their marriage. Right, right. And and if, you know, he went away or if Mick G went to see that one woman in new york <laughs> as suggested by the dowager countess yeah that would just be a different thing mm-hmm. and i'm just disappointed that you know it's not handled better yeah yeah anyway but the dowager countess says to lord grantham that she doesn't speak often of matters of the heart because it usually doesn't do any good but mm-hmm. she knows well the pain of a broken heart and it is Amazing. Yeah, and it's really nice because this is again where her, you can see in Maggie Smith the almost desire to reach out to her son, Uh but just that it's not possible. No, and you just kind of see how their relationship has gone over the years. Yeah. It's really one of the first genuine emotional moments that they've had since season one. Yeah. He says, oh, you know, he's dedicated his life to Downton and he won't see it, you know, torn down or whatever. Right, right. And even that, you know, that was also about, like, money and, and, and hair. I mean, this is yeah. a genuine emotional moment. Yeah, no, it really is one of the nicest scenes about their relationship that we've ever mm-hmm. seen. Yeah, yeah. Down in the kitchen, Daisy snaps at Alfred and Jimmy for loafing about as usual, mm-hmm. which they do do a lot of. Yeah, I'm like, didn't uh, William and Thomas always have shit to do? <laughs> yeah. Who's ironing the newspaper these days? That's an excellent question. Somebody's got to. Right? And it's not Carson. <laughs> not anymore. That's right. Alfred gives Ivy one of his patented creepy looks. Um, he has gotten so creepy. Yeah. Like, before he was just boring. <laughs> right. And then I was like, oh, hey, he's making out with that maid. And now he's just boring as hell. Yeah. Or, I'm sorry, creepy as hell. Right. And right. boring. Well, that's he manages to combine them well. He's cra-boring. He's a double threat. Or breepy. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun with words day today on that, Up Yours Downstairs. That it is. And breepy is quite a fun one. <laughs> but so Daisy, seeing this creepy look and being jealous of receiving it, oddly enough, uh, snaps it. How do you know a guy fancies you if he doesn't look at you all creepy? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And uh, reminds Ivy that she'll be doing both of their work tomorrow in a convenient bit of exposition because she's going out to visit Mr. Mason. Hooray! Yeah, that's very exciting. We thought he had been abandoned forever, but no, he's he's still he's still kicking. Tom, Julian Fellows never abandons anyone he creates. That is true. 
Alfred uh, makes some kind of quip about how he'd like to be his own boss like a farmer. And Daisy says they aren't their own bosses. They answer to the wind and the sun, etc. Which... Uh, you know, I'll take that. It just, I like, are you, are you casting a spell? <laughs> what is this? I'm like, where, where, uh, you where know. did you hear that, Daisy? Because those are not your words. <laughs> she, uh, she, what, she probably heard them from Mr. Mason. Probably. Actually, that's probably a direct quote from Mr. Mason. Yeah, that's actually. true. Yeah. Mrs. Patmore comes in and gets them all to work. <laughs> <laughs> and she grabs some papers and is starting to walk out and Daisy's looking at her. Ideas. Or, Lord. Their names aren't even remotely similar. I know, page. but <sighs> oh, kitchen maids all look the same to you. <laughs> Apparently so. Classist prick that I am. So Ivy is staring at Mrs. Patmore, uh, and <laughs> this is so ridiculous. And Mrs. Patmore snaps at her, and Ivy says, "A cat can look at a king," and Mrs. Patmore says, "But not a cook," and. You know, bustles off. I wish she'd also said, oh, P.S., you're not a cat, and then punched her in the face. <laughs> but she did not do that. She did not. Mrs. Patmore walks into the kitchen at Crawley House, and she's wondering why she came. And Ethel says, it's because you're kind. And, you know, whatever. She's kind. It's fine. <laughs> right. uh, so she drops off the recipes, and she says she'll come to check in. Uh, it's a salmon mousse and lamb chops portmanteau, mm-hmm. which sounds interesting. Apparently, it's lamb chops with liver and parsley, which, you know, right. why would you ruin a perfectly good lamb chop yeah. with liver? Why would Why would you eat the liver? It's not for eating. <laughs> Uh, so Ethel's worried she won't be able to do it, but Mrs. Patmore says that she has use of both of her limbs so she can make a salmon mousse. Yeah. Uh, and she'll be fine. So, so Ethel is, uh, she's on the precipice of either, uh, royally screwing up and <laughs> having Isabelle be even more passive aggressively mean to her or possibly doing well. Yeah. I did, I just had a random thought about, I, I do wonder what literacy rates were like in England at hmm. this time. That seems like something because, we might want to research. Yeah, it's pretty much taken as a given that everybody on the show can read. That's and that, true. That is, you know, certainly plausible to me. That may mm-hmm. well be correct. But I just suddenly thought of that when I saw the fallen woman, Ethel, reading these recipes. I was like, can she read? But can she cipher? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, in the library at Downton Abbey... Isabel materializes from behind a pillar. She, <laughs> just, it's the weirdest. <laughs> like, it's not even. We don't see her walk right past the pillar. She's just been like <laughs> hanging out behind the pillar. It's like, oh yes, I I never leave Downton anymore. <laughs> There's so much meddling to be done. <laughs> it's frightfully easy to hide here. It's quite large. Um, <laughs> she apologizes for barging in, though not for materializing and. Then she realizes that McGee has already changed for dinner and she is terribly late. And McGee says, yes, I'm afraid we're rather prompt. <laughs> Which I just thought was the most bizarre thing to say. Yeah. Like, I mean, yeah. it was clearly like a day like, why don't you know what time it is? <laughs> right. You have one job <laughs> to know what time it is. What are you, a farmer? <laughs> yeah. And she she tells Isabel that... Lord Grantham has invited Mr. Travis for dinner, and she just says it with such disgust mm-hmm. towards Mr. Travis. I enjoyed that. Uh, so Isabel invites McGee and the girls to luncheon uh, on an upcoming day, at which point the Dowager Countess, who's been there the whole time, <laughs> sitting on a, a, a little bench there, asks if she is, counts as one of the girls. 
Yes, yes, hello. <laughs> I'm here. I'm here. That wasn't a very good impression of her at all. No. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, everyone. Yes. So this is quite the magical library this evening. <laughs> People just popping in and out of existence all over. They're apparating like in Harry Potter. That's right. Yes. <laughs> Accio plot resolution. <laughs> Don't be ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, McGee says that she's not up for going out and resists Isabel's urgings. But then Matthew and Mary come in and the Dowager Countess tells Mary that Isabel has invited them, at which point Mary accepts. I get she just says thank you. Well, she says thank you, but it's basically it puts McGee in a situation where yeah. she can't say, no, I told her no. Yeah. So, which is a little maneuvering by the Dowager Countess. There. She's a pretty savvy old bird. Yeah, yeah. They all ask Isabel to stay for dinner, even though she says she's dressed quite wrongly. But they say they could, they, what do they say? They could use, they could use little, some cheering up. They could use, yeah, we could use some cheering up and we find you hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> Back in the kitchen, uh, Daisy puts a pudding on Alfred's tray. No, on Jimmy's tray. Yes, Jimmy's tray. Jimmy gets the pudding. Jimmy always gets the pudding. <laughs> You're darn right he does. Uh, so Ivy asks Jimmy if he can manage the pudding and then apologizes for insulting his manhood, which, you know what, Ivy? I don't generally buy into the gender binary, <laughs> but that's just a basic skill. It's not a large pudding. Right. That's the, if he, he can't manage that every pudding. Day. If he can't manage that pudding, he would never have been hired. No. That's the simplest part of his job. He has to manage p- pudding manager. <laughs> 1918 to 1920. <laughs> Alfred asks Daisy if she's looking forward to her outing with Mr. Mason, and Daisy says she is and looks genuinely happy and excited. So it's nice to see that yeah, yeah. Daisy has something good in her life. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then Ivy suggests that Alfred go with Daisy, and Alfred says he'd rather go out with Ivy. And then Mrs. Patmore, <laughs> unlikely voice of reason, just comes over and says, the trouble with you lot is that you're all in love with the wrong people. <laughs> Which is, it's so great. And it's, in most hands, it would be rough to have somebody just like putting the subtext right out in the open yeah, like that. Yeah. But Mrs. Patmore just totally gets away with it. It, uh, One of my favorite lines of this episode. It was so great. Yeah. But yeah, it, Ivy was totally nagging Jimmy on that with the manhood line. Oh, yeah? Yeah, like that pickup artist thing where you kind of subtly undermine somebody so that they then seek your approval. Oh, like you did to me that time? Oh, yeah. yeah. Now I, we're married. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so it works, people. Yeah. Good luck, Ivy. At dinner with Mr. Travis. <laughs> He's the murder prison of Yorkshire people. <laughs> he is. Or I guess of Downton Abbey. Oh, right, right. Estate people. Mr. Travis feels that there is something un-English about the Roman church, and he he doesn't think that God finds all that incense and falderall very pleasing to him. Pagan falderall. <laughs> um, and Branson, I love the look on Branson's face, in like really through this scene. He's just like, fine, whatever. Why are we even talking about oh, this? Right. I already said no. Right. Like, well, just the arrogance, just to think that, oh, we're going to change his mind. How? What would make you think that Branson would ever change his People mind? People always, that? always, always think that they can change your mind about religion. I guess so. I mean, if they're that kind of person, yeah, yeah. You know? I mean, it's just like anybody who thinks that theirs is the one true mm-hmm. 
always wants to find some way, and they because the thing is, like, they are always like, oh, they're gonna thank me, like in heaven, right? Like when we get there, and it turns out I was right, they're gonna be like, thanks for doing me a solid back on earth, buddy. <laughs> yeah, I really owe you one, except we're in heaven now, and I don't think that people are allowed to owe each other stuff, <laughs> right? Yeah. Oh, Have I- you been to heaven? <laughs> do you know how it works? If you do, write in. We want to hear your story. And get the publishing rights. Because that shit will make bank. That's true. Even if you're making it up. Yeah, even if you're making it up. Let's let's talk. Yeah, let's do this. Gosh, <laughs> we are going to make so much money from today. I know. This is so been, excited. This has been our most profitable podcast ever. <laughs> uh, but yeah. Well, and also, of course, Travis said that Travis's comment about the uh, Roman Church being un-English, as Branson pointed out, he's Irish. Mm-hmm. He doesn't care at all. Yeah, being English is his least concern. Yes, but at this point in the dinner, everybody except Lord Grantham all gets a line in at Mister Travis, asking, you know, whether, for example, God is not pleased by all the people in France or Spain or Portugal or. All these other things. He and says there must be a good many good Spaniards. Oh, something right. like really offensive. Right. And I think it's just because the word Spaniard sounds so incredibly <laughs> racist. Yeah, even though it's not. That's, yeah. That's the name for people from Spain. Yeah, but, but I'm like, ah, I can't <laughs> say that. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, Matthew asks about the Indian subcontinent, where, of course, they are not even Christian at all. It is true. And um, But Mr. Travis is in favor and as is God, according to Mr. Travis, of spreading the Christian word to the masses in India. Yeah, well, and he says that actually in response to Isabel, who asks about right. the British Empire. Right, Which yes. is interesting. That's the it most is... overtly really progressive thing we've heard her say, like in terms of really being out of line with everybody mm-hmm. else. Because, you know, helping the prostitutes and the sick, like, you right. know, nobody that's, can that's, argue with that. That's rich lady charity stuff. Yeah, but yeah. she's like, hey, maybe we shouldn't be colonizing all these people. Yeah, and again, it's it's this complete generational solidarity include you know everybody including matthew including branson they're all pretty much on the same page i don't know if it's just the way that i was raised which is that literally every other religion is wrong oh right uh but this felt very ecumenical to me for the time period mm-hmm. everybody seemed extremely open-minded and i was kind of surprised yeah well i mean i it, it seems to me like a world war one reaction sort of thing yeah i guess that makes because sense. Well, we did have the question at the last clergyman's visit about whether you know the war had brought people closer to the church or right. driven them away yeah and i can't remember whether i said this on the podcast before or not but i mean you know anybody who was serving in the war like matthew would have been serving with catholic french soldiers mm-hmm. on his side and you know hindu Gur- gurkhas from nepal or mm-hmm. possibly buddhist i don't know which they would have been but you know he would have served with people from multiple religions mm-hmm. and yeah, and Mary had sex uh, with a Turk. <laughs> with a Turk, so yeah, she knows. Although he seemed very anglicized, he did. But I, I it well, doesn't. I guess it doesn't mean that he. Well, I mean, he he wouldn't have been Anglican. Oh no, no, yeah, no. So whatever he was, he would have been Anglicant. <laughs> <laughs> As in, can't get it up and stay alive. <laughs> oh, you know, he's dead. I just want to take a moment to say. And I think Mr. Pamuk's death has paid the most dividends of any event on Downton Abbey to date. It really is sort of the central moment of the entire yeah. show. Yeah. I just meant for our jokes. <laughs> wow. <laughs> for entertaining me personally. Oh, boy. Yeah. That, too. It's, it's, it's been great for the entire world. Yes. Lord Grantham apologizes to Mr. Travis for everybody ganging up on him. And Mary... 
it finally occurs to Mary at this point to reveal that Sybil had asked for the child to be baptized Catholic, which you couldn't have told Lord Grantham under the conversation tree. Yeah, that's where you have afternoon. conversations. Yeah, you could have really import. You really could have saved Mr. Travis an awkward dinner. Yeah, if you had just gotten that out there earlier. Yeah, so Branson is happy to hear this. Lord Grantham, not so much. <laughs> He's quite upset, <laughs> enraged, in fact. Yes. This, of course, makes McGee happy. <laughs> uh, and she points out that not everyone chooses their religion to satisfy Debrett's, which is along the lines of Burke's peerage. It's another stud book, although it was also more associated with etiquette and, like, forms of address and things like uh, that. Ah, okay. So, yeah. And now it's time for one of our recurring segments with our Catholic Casanova, Tom. Hey, everyone. It's Tom Repeats History. <laughs> Thank you. Boy, it keeps happening, and I am surprised every time. <laughs> it is an adventure. Um, <laughs> so now that the subject of Catholicism has finally been raised, I was thinking about all the times we have sort of asked the void what the deal was with Catholics in England at this mm-hmm. time. So I decided I'd actually go out and try to answer it. Did you? Did you stare into the void? Uh, and it stared back. Of the whirlpool of your sin? Uh, Wikipedia. Oh. <laughs> so. Wow. Yeah. I was just trying to make a Les Mis joke. Well, I did not. I, you, that doesn't work with me, Kelly. <laughs> My powers are powerless against you. <laughs> what? I don't know. Listen. Yeah. Tell me about Catholics in England, Tom. Well, I'll do my best. It was – I really couldn't find as much as I had hoped. Was uh, it just, we're a ginnum? <laughs> not particularly. Um, so just sort of a rundown of what the history of it was. A lot of this is kind of basic stuff. Obviously, it started with Henry VIII, breaking with the Catholic Church. And the Catholic Church was quite naturally annoyed at this. And they tried constantly to figure out ways to get England to be Catholic again and bring it back into the church. <laughs> Uh, I just think, I'm just thinking of like the Pope, like just being all mad and like, <laughs> scheming all the like he's like the Pope was Thomas, you know, vis a vis trying to get England to go Catholic. That's again. that's a very accurate statement, except generations upon generations of Thomas. Uh, all that incense equals smoking cigarettes. Ah, uh, yeah. Is there a conspiracy theory group out there for this yet? Because <laughs> I want to join. <laughs> Not started. That's a lot of work. <laughs> Yeah, I've already um, started this podcast. <laughs> I'm in way over my head. <laughs> Got to write that Thomas and the erotic pen pal. Like, yeah, we're 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 quite busy. Yeah, my plate's pretty full. <laughs> in any case, uh, it, it basically all their everything they tried to backfire because it basically reinforced Henry VIII's original message that the Catholics were foreigners trying to subvert the good, honest English government. <laughs> Well, that was a, that was a story. I understand. Look, I'm just I'm just saying I've watched the Tudors and I watched. I mean, looked at it a little while while I was doing something else. Right. As, what, what is it like a as, bus or something? As have so many of us. And basically, they pinned their hopes for a long time that a Catholic would eventually ascend to the throne, but except for Bloody Mary, who had a short and bloody reign and did not leave an heir. So after that, Elizabeth took over, um, and actually. One thing to note is that uh, Bloody Mary freed Thomas Howard, third third Duke of Norfolk, from the Tower of London, where he had been imprisoned for sticking to his Catholicism. That is the ancestor of the Dowager Duchess of Norfolk, 
uh, Maggie Smith mentions in this episode being friends with. And more Catholic than the Pope. Indeed. Uh, Who's yes. quite Catholic, as I understand it. <laughs> yeah, so the, the Howards were indeed the prominent Catholic family in England for like 600 years wow. or something like that. I wonder yeah. where they are now. Uh, well, I, it's on, I can tell you it's on Wikipedia and everything. Oh, great. Uh, they're still, they're the like sort of premier noble family in the realm, like oh. according to the like laws of precedence and stuff. Wow. Yeah. That's like, impressive that they managed to hold on to that, mm-hmm. you know, through all the troubles. Well, yeah. I mean, especially because once Elizabeth came along, she executed the fourth Duke of Norfolk. <laughs> Um, so they were actually out of it for a bit at that point, but with the restoration of Charles II down the road, that's when they got restored mm-hmm. and were have kept that to this day. In any case, a few generations or successions down the line, James II finally fulfilled the Catholic dream of having a Catholic on the throne. But by that point, anti-Catholic sentiment was so ingrained in the populace and was such a strong feeling that he was, you know, essentially deposed and run out of England um, with the Glorious Revolution. Rome, at this point, continued to support James II as well as his son, who is known as the Old Pretender, and his his grandson, who is known as either Bonnie Prince Charlie or the Young Pretender. They were supported by the Rome and France, and all three of them invaded either either Ireland or Scotland at one time or another, mostly pretty pathetically. Uh, Bonnie Prince Charlie did win a few battles, but he wound up getting crushed just like his parents had. And fi- so finally in 1766, Bonnie Prince Charlie died, so there were no... Not so Bonnie anymore. <laughs> right. Well, time makes fools of us all. Um, <laughs> and corpses. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and he didn't leave an heir, so there was no real solid Catholic claimant anymore. And the Catholic Church finally officially recognized the Hanovers, who were the new ruling mm-hmm. party, as the lawful rulers of Britain. And that enabled the British government to relax on Catholics because they would no longer be asked uh, to choose between allegiance to the king or to the Catholic Church. Okay. So in 1778 was the first time that they passed uh, the Catholic Relief Act, which basically said if you take an oath renouncing any Stuart claims to the throne and any papal claims to civil jurisdiction, then you could own property, you could inherit property, and you could join the army, all of which they had been banned from doing before. Wow. Yeah. And there were actually, there were riots against that in various places in Scotland and other, other places, but the tide was really turning of public opinion towards tolerance. And it, it became very strong. Every member of the House of Commons elected after 1807, uh, with one exception, was in favor of Catholic emancipation. Mm-hmm. It was a very strong movement. And it was, uh, a crucial time for this because in 1801 was when the Act of Union with Ireland was passed, which eliminated the Irish Parliament and unified the two countries as one single kingdom. Before, they'd always been two separate kingdoms that just always happened to have the same king. But when they did that, it was with the implicit promise to the Irish that in return for giving up a certain amount of independence, they would get Catholic emancipation. Mm-hmm. But the king was against it, and the House of Lords were against it, and so they could not get that passed. And so for about 30 years at this point, the Irish didn't have a parliament, and Catholics in Ireland, where they were almost all Catholic, weren't allowed to run for parliament. And they got real mad. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> in 1828, a Catholic was actually elected in County Clare in Ireland, despite the fact that everybody knew he was not allowed to take his seat. Mm-hmm. Finally, in 1829, some lords came around and passed Catholic emancipation, uh, but it was basically really too late at that point as far as Ireland was concerned. That same guy that had been elected turned around the next year and started the uh, 
what was it called? It was called, I believe, something like the Repeal Organization or something like that that was designed to go well beyond Catholic emancipation, repeal the Act of Union, restore Irish parliamentary independence, mm-hmm. and, and all this sort of thing. And that was really one of the forerunners of pretty much all the Irish nationalist movements that okay. followed. So that was really the King George, uh, I think I think that may have still been King George III or, or the fourth, and the Lord's resistance at that point really laid this, the, the groundwork for the next two centuries of Irish uh, rebellion, mm-hmm. essentially. So that brings us up to the point where Catholics were legally emancipated and, and not discriminated against anymore. Uh, and so it became hard to find details going forward. <clears throat> in 1850, bishops and dioceses were once again reestablished in England by the Catholic Church. Uh, so that you know was sort of a formal thing. Uh, in 1889, a Catholic cardinal, Cardinal Manning, the Archbishop of Westminster, played a key role in mediating a dock workers' strike in Liverpool, uh, and he's widely considered as one of the key influences that got the Catholic Church to come out in favor of labor rights. Mm. Uh, the encyclical Rerum Novarum came out around then, and it, it said that the Catholic Church believed workers had a right to organize. So that was that was a, uh, an important moment in Catholic history. And then by the late 19th and early 20th century, Catholicism started to become fashionable and people started to convert. We've talked about that a bit before. Uh, you know, all the, the incense and pagan folderol, uh, Mr. Travis may not have liked it, but like the esthetes and the bright young uh-huh. things, they fucking loved incense and pagan mm-hmm. folderol. Uh, so it became a, uh, uh, much more common thing. And Yorkshire was always a pretty strong Catholic region, you know, I mean, varying obviously with the level of di- discrimination they were facing, but there were always a high concentration of Catholic recusants, mm-hmm. as they were called in Yorkshire throughout history, partly um, because of the Howard family, who wasn't in Yorkshire, but was in the north, and other northern families uh, stayed Catholic, sort of giving cover to their populace. Uh, so it looks to me like young Sybil, when she is baptized, if it's still in the Downton Abbey area, it looks to me it would be St. Wilfred's Catholic Church in Ripon would be the place. Ripon? City of a Thousand Dreams? <laughs> that, that's the one. Oh, boy. Yeah. Um, and it's actually, uh, it's St. Wilfred's Catholic Church named from the same St. Wilfred whose, bo- whose bones are buried in Ripon Cathedral, <gasps> which is obviously Anglican now. So when the Catholics came back, they just had to like build their own little church and call it St. Wilfred's. And- I want to go to Ripon. <laughs> Someday. See the sights. Yeah. And I would think that that would be where- Make a e- wish where Edith on St. T- Wilfred's bones. Uh, I, you, you presumably could. Uh, so I assume Ripon Cathedral would be where Edith took Matthew back in season one. Ah, yeah. that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Uh, and in the unlikely event that they were to get a bishop involved, uh, possibly when Sybil gets confirmed someday, it would have been the Bishop of Middlesbrough or the Bishop of Hallam. I couldn't quite tell where their territory was, but it would be see. one of the two. I wish there was more information just on how people managed to practice their religion right. during those years of persecution. I'm yeah. sure there's a very long-winded book out there that we could find. Yeah, that's the thing. No, and I, you know, books have so much more information and they're so much harder to find and read. And read. <laughs> yeah, you can't search a book. Like it's surprising to me how much I've come to depend on being able to search for text and whatever I'm reading. Mm-hmm. You know, because I read I you know, I've read that book about King Edward and I'm like, where was that thing I was looking at mm-hmm. and yeah. You know, I have no idea. I sure. just have to flip through every... Anyway. Oh, well, I guess we should get an e-reader. I guess so. Well, you heard it here first. <laughs> We're getting an e-reader. Apparently so. 
Uh, so yeah, slightly, slightly light on, on that one, but that's what I got. All right. Well, thank you very much, Tom. That was enlightening. <laughs> Thanks. Back at Downton Abbey, downstairs, the conversation of Catholics v. Anglicans has reached the staff, and Carson declares he has no great wish to persecute Catholics, <laughs> but he doesn't think they're loyal to the crown. And Mrs. Hughes says that the Catholics will be relieved to hear that he no longer wants them burned at the stake. And uh, Jimmy Kent says he doesn't believe in orthodoxy, causing O'Brien to say, that's a long word, <laughs> which I'm like... It's, it's not, not actually that like long. Orthodoxy. Right. Four syllables. You know, it's uh, shut up, O'Brien. <laughs> right. Here, here. Uh, let your bangs do the talking. <laughs> anyway, uh, he thinks that a man can choose to be different without being a traitor. And Thomas enthusiastically <laughs> agrees with <laughs> he him. He certainly does. They're like, they're like in, uh, in, uh, that old Looney Tunes where there's the big dog and the small dog. <laughs> and the small dog is always like, yeah, yeah, Spike, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Anna chimes in and diplomatically reminds everyone that discussing religion is uh, private and it will only cause to trouble between everyone. And uh, Mrs. Hughes agrees enthusiastically with that, saying, Amen. Yes. Uh, Alfred, not paying any attention to Anna anymore, oh, apparently, right. says he's glad to be Church of England because he hates Latin, smelly smoke, and men in dresses. <laughs> and Thomas asks how he feels about transubstantiation. Much longer word than orthodoxy. It's true. Would just like to point out, O'Brien. Yeah. Also, aren't you more mad at Thomas than you are at Jimmy Kent? She doesn't even know anymore. I, I don't. I don't feel like we're getting enough O'Brien this season. Agreed. Anyway, uh, Alfred is just confused because, of course, the Anglicans do not have transubstantiation. Right. Uh, and then Carson says that Alfred's heart is in the right <laughs> place, unlike some people under this roof. And I think he's trying to talk about Thomas. Yeah. But I'm pretty sure mostly shit his pants. I know. He's like, who told you? <laughs> Does he know about that thimble I lost six months ago? <laughs> it's been haunting my dreams. Uh, maybe it's in my heart. <laughs> Where did I put that? Not in the right place again. Poor Mosley. Yeah. Like, are you just a visual punchline from now on? Like, is that your lot? Because you're doing fine at that. He really but, is. Yeah. Up in Matthew and Mary's room, they're still sleeping in the same bed. Ooh la la. Yeah. Uh, Maybe she bought a garter. <laughs> yes. But, oh, I guess Hannah gets to use her garter eventually. Oh, uh, that'll be. Boo. <laughs> it's wasted on that potato head. Agreed. Uh, in any case, they're not being sexy right now. Matthew asks Mary if maybe Sybil knew she was dying. And hence asked her to take care of the baby and all that. And Mary says that she's, you know, she's just not sure. Uh, she's certainly thought about it. And Mary says that, well, they, the, Matthew says that they should be used to people dying young at this point, but, you know, they're not. You can't be. And Mary says that they can't take anything for granted. And Matthew says that that's what he's been trying to say about Downton, that's being mismanaged. That is awkward. Right. That is not the right time yes. to say that. And Mary, rather than being annoyed, which would really be more justified now than other times, uh, but she says no, that they must never take each other for granted. And they, uh, you know, they, they pledge each other, they renew their pledges of love to each other and presumably then do it. Yeah. I would think. And cry. <laughs> Mr. Murray goes into that same alleyway to go see old Mrs. Bartlett, 
who has changed her story and will yeah. not cop to having changed her story. Murray's quite dismayed. Uh, the details are very confusing. Right. I don't remember what she said originally, but like, that doesn't sound like what Murray's trying to get her to say. Yeah. But also, we don't care. We don't. So we're not gonna bother. Do it not genuinely, care. don't write to us. <laughs> don't try to explain it. Cause fuck it. That's why. Agreed. Then he, he, he wonders why, if she's just going to tell him this, you know, cock and bull story, why she bothered having him come to see her. And then she makes this crack about making him see how real people live. Yeah. And I guess the implication that he is that he's like a big fancy lawyer and she's not. And like, I understand, you know, classism, right. whatever, but it's like also, you know, he had a good go to law school <laughs> it's like i'm real too look at this mustache <laughs> it's the realest mustache ever <laughs> much realer than that mr durance <laughs> yeah so yeah that's pointless in the kitchen ivy is humming to herself and dancing a bit and alfred asks if she likes dancing and jimmy kent who is standing in the hallway standing up tall and proud like he's just about to play peter pan you know, <laughs> just gonna dance on in and- i will Grow up, I won't grow up. <laughs> but he says everyone likes dancing. Uh, I don't. Right. Uh, I well, like it fine. Sometimes when I'm really drunk. <laughs> <laughs> well, everybody likes being drunk. That's not the same thing. <laughs> and uh, Ivy asks if Alfred likes the foxtrot. And Jimmy Kent says that Alfred takes himself too seriously to dance. He won't dance. How could he? He can't dance. Look at his face. <laughs> it's true. And somebody says something about being young or too young. Yeah, Ivy says she likes dancing because uh, it makes you glad to be young. Oh, right. Yeah. Even though Ivy seems like a 60-year-old woman to me. Alfred, too. Yeah. Like, oh, I'm, I'm 53. I thought you knew. <laughs> That's why I look like this. <laughs> Happened in the war. See, now you think I look great, don't you? You see Daisy walking up to Mr. Mason's farm, and he sees her through his window, and he's so happy, and we're happy. Yeah, Daisy's happy. This is really the good news we've all been waiting for. This is. No, This is wonderful. Yeah, it was just so... Because it's been so so long since we've actually seen Daisy in a good mood. Yeah, yeah, it was just... It's just so, like, refreshing. Yeah. So she goes in and, you know, is, I think, you know, making lunch or something. Right. And he basically tells her he wants to leave her his farm. Yeah. Uh, when he dies. And she says, oh, you know, I'm a cook. Right. And he says, well, there's plenty of cooking to do on the farm. And he <laughs> yeah. says, oh, you could, you know, do a brisk business at the, the local markets with jams and jellies and cakes, things like that. She feels very skeptical because she's a woman. She says, <laughs> uh, but I'm a woman. And he says, oh, I hadn't noticed that. And it is just so cute. Yeah. Mr. Mason, why aren't you my dad? (laughs) Dad, you can keep listening. (laughs) Anyway, but he says that, you know, widows will often take on a tenancy and she's well liked up at the big house. So they aren't going to refuse her. She says she can't answer yet and not in a, you know, right. Like Daisy's clearly matured and we see it more here in this scene than anywhere else because she says, okay, I'm just going to think about it. Yeah. Uh, And he says, no, absolutely. You think about it. But uh, he said his dream would be for her to come live with him on the farm so that he can teach her how to run it. He owns all of the equipment and the livestock. Mm-hmm. And he's got some money put away. He's not in debt. So she'd be inheriting, you know, a fully functional, profitable farm. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, he points out that she's got 40 years of work ahead of her. 
and that these great houses like Downton Abbey aren't going to go on forever because she says that she always imagined that she'd be in service right. for the rest of her life. Right. So, and you can kind of see the wheels turning in her head and yeah. she's, you know, considering it. Yeah, which is a fine point. I would point out farms also going to change a lot in the next 40 years. Yeah, but, but you, know, you know, you can't plan for You can everything. be one of those back to the land people. Yeah, yeah. Like Matthew. <laughs> I suppose so. At the Dower House, Dr. Clarkson arrives to see the Dowager Countess, and she wants to know what the, basically what the real chance of Sybil surviving would have been had they followed his advice and, and gotten the emergency C-section. And she's basically saying that he has caused a rift between her son and his wife, and they, that it, you know, it needs to be fixed. And he's, he says, you know, he couldn't tell a lie. Um, even, even to bring, yeah, he says, even to bring, or even to ease suffering, I couldn't tell an outright lie. And we're both like, whoa, 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 whoa. Because you've only done like three things on this whole show, and one of them was tell an outright lie. To uh, ease suffering. Right, Although to actually, ease suffering. that lie caused more suffering. <laughs> As it turned out. So maybe that's when he lies, is when he's gonna make it worse. <laughs> I only lie to cause suffering. <laughs> Isn't that why everyone lies? <laughs> I think so. Yes, but in any case, the Dowager Countess re- responds with lie is such is so unmusical a word. I'm not sure that's totally true. I yeah. can think of songs, you know, tell me lies, tell me sweet little lies. Tell me lies, tell me, tell me lies. Like Thompson Twins or something? Uh-huh. There have been songs about lies. Yeah. They're great. <laughs> more songs about lying <laughs> less murder prison yeah also like to point out dr clarkson did not create the division between no those dumb dumbs did it all by themselves yeah here here matthew is uh giving branson the old tour of the rotting carcass of the downton estate this is pretty much all that matthew does anymore <laughs> is give various people tours of the estate <laughs> Uh, and complain about it. Yeah. So he's he's pitching him on how to revitalize it. Uh, and it turns out that Branson knows all about sheep farming from his former uh, tenant farmer grandfather. Yes, in Galway. In Galway. Yes, which is the first sort of location. I mean, I think, well, they were in Dublin after they got married. And he but, said his mother lived there. Okay, okay. Because I was, I was wondering, had he been from Dublin all along or... or well, and, you know what? It would make a certain amount of sense, uh, depending on how old his grandfather was, that the family kind of started out in Galway, but mm-hmm. then like with the potato blight and everything. Yeah, that's I don't true. know how that would affect a sheep farmer. Right. But, uh, but the w- whole island was pretty fucked. Yeah. And, well, you and know, and in the absence of being able to go to America, might have relocated to an urban center. Yeah. And I mean, ultimately, the fundamental thing that the Irish complained about was the way tenant farmers were treated. So mm-hmm. something may well have happened to his grandfather that helped radicalize. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so many more interesting shows <laughs> than the one we're getting are yeah. possible. Anyway, uh, you know, kind of on those same lines, Matthew says that Branson must hate it at Down because mm-hmm. it, you know, must re- kind of remind him of sort of the state of his family mm-hmm. in those years. But uh, Branson says he doesn't hate it, and I would think he's got some very positive memories of yeah. how he met Sybil. Yeah. And, uh, but he doesn't belong there, he says. He says he might move to Liverpool and just hire a woman or enslave a cousin to care for <laughs> baby Sybil. He, my word, not his. Right. Matthew suggests that Branson could leave her a Downton, but Branson says he won't be separated her, which, as we all know, is uh, – and a clear example of Chekhov's custody battle. <laughs> well, he also says, I can't leave her. She's all I have left of Sybil. And again, I give 
brands him plenty of leeway because of the horrible situation he's in, but she's also a child, your mm-hmm. child. Like, she's not just a fragment of Sybil. You know what, though? I don't know. I think that I, bugged you more than it bugged me. Yeah. And, like, I mean, I, again, he's still fresh out of his, you right, know. Right. And I, I, you know, as I say, I give him plenty of time to, to deal with all this. Yeah. And I mean, but I mean, also at the same time, wouldn't you feel at least somewhat that way? Right. In well, the same sense. I mean, you know, yeah, we're not, only hearing one part and then that's the part that I think he has to keep, you know, again, I'm making up this whole backstory. Sure, sure. But like, that's, you know, he has to keep reemphasizing his relationship to Sybil so that they will take him seriously. Yeah. 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 It, you know, not a huge problem. I just, it just a little bit the wrong way with me. At Crawley House, down in the kitchen, Mrs. Patmore asks Ethel if she knows what she's doing. Ethel thinks that she does. Uh, Mrs. Patmore reminds her to use an alarm clock to remember when to take things out of the oven and put them in. Is that a thing that people didn't know? Or I, is it just that Ethel is a dum-dum? It seems like sort of the first rule of cooking after, like, don't cut your fingers off. Or stick your hand on anything <laughs> hot right. without a towel or a mitt. Yeah. So this is maybe second day of cooking <laughs> But in any case, Mrs. Patmore, you know, she's on the spot and she thinks Ethel has done well and has maybe even done herself a favor. No, and that's a very savvy remark by Mrs. Patmore Mm -hmm. because, I mean, it's hard to say how much she's gleaned about the situation in terms of sort of Ethel's ability. Right. But, I mean, clearly, you know, Ethel wouldn't be asking for help. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I wish, though, just once Ethel would be like, I'm a terrible cook. (laughs) Right. You know? Well, yeah, I mean, but, you know, Ethel is... Ethel is currently on the last chance she will ever get. Yeah, that's, that's true. That's a lot of pressure. That is a lot of pressure. Yeah. So, all right, Ethel. Yeah. You're off the hook on this one. <laughs> Carson just walking around down by Crawley House. He sure wanders around the village an awful lot. Mm-hmm. Well, that's how he uh, keeps an eye on things. Apparently um, so. He needs to get more spies. <laughs> he needs to take a page out of Varus's book in Game of Thrones. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, or really everyone's book. <laughs> <laughs> Except for Sansa. Well, okay. Poor dumb Sansa. (laughs) Not this podcast, Kelly. (laughs) Carson sees Mrs. Patmore leaving Crawley House and harumphs. He does. Vehemently. He is very upset. Yes. (sighs) At murder prison. (laughs) Why? At murder prison, uh, Murray Bates... And Anna have a conversation that serves no purpose. Here's something I thought of this past week about this thing. If any of you have ever been to tvtropes.org, it's, it just sort of gives different shorthand for the different way things are handled on television. One of which is to put a character on the bus. When you put a character on the bus, it means you ship them off to a location that is away for every, away from where everything else in the show is happening for an indefinite period of time so that it's like killing a character off but with the option of bringing them back later. Julian Fellows wants to put people on the bus all the time, but he doesn't have the guts to do it. Mm -hmm. Ethel was on a bus. She was off in prostitute land, and we did not need to hear anything from her. The first, like, three episodes that she was in, she didn't need to be in because it was just her coming in and hesitating going out. Just leave her out there on the bus. Like, oh, Ethel's in trouble? Gee, we had no idea. Exactly. Leave her out there. When when you want to bring her back in, just... Bring it straight away with Isabel Caesar and tries to help her. You know, mm-hmm. bam. Give us a scene first of her life as a prostitute. Let us know where that's going. Yeah. And then just get right <clears throat> right into the story. And Bates is the same way this season. He's been... He, 
for whatever reason, Julian Fellows has not wanted to bring Bates back until late in this season, uh, apparently. Uh, no, I mean, look, the Bates and Anna and murder prison plotline is exactly the Mary Matthew Lavinia love triangle of last season. It's just this long thing yeah. where we all know he's not going to kill Mr. Bates, just like we all knew that Matthew wasn't going to marry Lavinia. Yeah. And there's no, to me, there's no pleasure in that kind of television watching. Right. And, and this one is worse because at least with Matthew Mary Lavinia, it was just, it was still all the characters we knew. Mm-hmm. No, and, and, and it was, the, it was plausible that that might right. happen. I mean, right. I'm not, this Whereas may be this, plausible. I don't care. Right. But, I but don't the thing think about it is, plausible. why did we, why do we need Mrs. Bartlett and Mr. Durant and Craig and all these characters who are introduced were told nothing about their lives or backstory? They just serve as obstacles for no, just to delay this plot line for no reason. Yeah. Stick Bates in prison. Bring him back whenever you want to bring him back. Just have a scene of Anna looking sad every couple of episodes and, you know. Even if you wanted to show a couple of scenes of her going to see him in the play. Yeah. Because, I mean, that's what I thought it was going to be. And right. I would have been fine with that, more right. or less. You know, and I wouldn't even necessarily mind her going to see Mrs. Bartlett if that's a pivotal yeah. turning point in the plot. But, like... You know, this, that should feel like a victory for Anna, but it's just all so dull and stupid, and I hate it right. so much. And especially this last episode is such an egregious example of just – because, you know, spoiler alert, Mrs. Bartlett is going to come around. So why did we spend this episode accompl- – there was nothing, nothing in this episode mm-hmm. that made any sense or served any purpose. It just, again, walked in a circle for an episode and got back to the same point it started at. So mm-hmm. why did we spend all this time on that? Anyway. You feel also, better? Yeah. No, I do. Also, the scene happened, which I didn't bother to describe. Moving on. Yeah. Basically, Murray says that they'll figure out how to, you know, they can't bribe Mrs. Bartlett. You know, they can't offer a counter bribe. But yeah. they, basically, Murray gives Bates permission <laughs> to, like, try to kill somebody or something. A- apparently, And yeah. Anna says not to do anything stupid. And we're all like, too late! <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He also wonders what Mrs. Bartlett is thinking right now, which I assume is, why did I pick such ugly wallpaper? (laughs) (laughs) Isabel runs into the kitchen at Crawley House and says, I smell cooking! (laughs) As if it's like a gas leak. (laughs) Right. Well, Uh, she's had Ethel's cooking. (laughs) (laughs) Tastes like petrol. Uh, Ethel promises that it'll be all right, and Isabel tells her that the luncheon is a failure. She's holding Ethel responsible. Yes. Shouldn't you hold yourself responsible well, for A, hiring a cook who can't cook, and B, refusing to do anything proactive to change the fact that she can't cook? Yeah, also, oh yeah, because ham and salad was a surefire success. Yes, what a horrible lunch. Yeah. If I went to a luncheon and somebody just was like, here, here's some ham and salad, <laughs> I'd be like, fuck you, I'm going to Burger King. <laughs> uh, Mrs. Patmore comes into Mrs. Hughes's parlor, and Carson confronts her about going to Crawley House and accuses her of frolicking with prostitutes. And Mrs. Patmore says, do I look like a frolicker? Which, no, she does not. She does not. That's a great line. Perhaps in her younger days, but... Yes. And Mrs. Patmore goes on to inform Mr. Carson that the guests for the luncheon she was... The precious luncheon. The precious luncheon that she was helping with are uh, the Crawley sisters as well as McGee and the Dowager Countess and then drops the mic and walks out. Carson has no response. No, she stays. I, I know. I just wanted okay. her to drop yeah, the mic Okay, yeah, no. Carson out. about loses his damn mind. Yeah. And he just leaves. Yeah. And 
It's amazing. Yeah. Uh, well, yes. he does say he's speechless. Yes, he says he's speechless, and Mrs. Hughes says that he won't stay speechless for long. <laughs> yeah. So presumably this is lunch, mm-hmm. because Mrs. Patmore in the previous scene had mentioned right. that she's only doing lunch for the men, and they're very easy to cook for. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Matthew wants to discuss the estate, but Lord Grantham is being a total dick, and like he yeah. says, oh, let's not bore Tom with this. And Matthew's <laughs> like, you know, he is your son-in-law. Lord Grantham's like, whatever. <laughs> Matthew finally comes out with it and says that they're losing capital because of bad management. Yes. And Lord Grantham just blows a gasket. Yeah. Then Carson comes in and asks if he can have a word. Lord Grantham's like, can't it wait? And Carson's like, uh, no, dude. Yeah. Hookers. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Boy, Matthew sure is lucky that Lord Grantham did not accept his offer to just give him the money because it would all be gone by now. Down in the kitchen, Jimmy Kent saunters on in and says that Carson's got a bee in his bonnet. I think you mean he flies in. <laughs> he does. You're right. He does fly he in. He can fly. He can fly. <laughs> he can fly. Boy, whoever plays that drinking game where they drink every time I burst into song is hammered right now. <laughs> Lucky cousin. <laughs> Mrs. Patmore tells Jimmy Kent to shut up and uh, asks Ivy if she's been running because her color's up. Uh, which it has been ever since we've seen her. Yeah. Really. But I really didn't notice it. Yeah. Until the second time through this episode. <laughs> right. So. Uh, and Joke's on me. <laughs> Alfred asks Daisy how her day off was, and Ivy asks Jimmy what he's doing on his day off. He says they'll go off somewhere on his own and, you know. Masturbate, probably. Hang out with Tinkerbell. <laughs> sure. Those are the same thing, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, for a certain person. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he then uh, makes awkward eye contact with Thomas and uh, runs off. Uh, Mrs. Patmore tells Ivy that Jimmy Kent is not interested in her. And Thomas says that, oh, well, this is whoever he's interested in, it's not you. Guess what, Thomas? He literally ran out of the room <laughs> rather than even acknowledge you. So I don't think it's you either. It's been a dry spell. Yeah. He's Oh my he's god, reaching. what if it turned out Jimmy Kent was Thomas's erotic pen pal? <laughs> only they didn't even know. It's like you've got mail. Oh my god, only so much better. <laughs> well, yes, that goes without saying. <laughs> and Daisy, uh, Mrs. Patmore notices her a bit flustered, and Daisy reveals that she has been offered Mr. Mason's farm, and Mrs. Patmore says that she is a proper heiress. That's kind of a cute scene. Cause yeah. I, be, I feel like first season, Mrs. Patmore, not that she necessarily would have poo-pooed it, yeah, but you know, but, they both understand that this is kind of a legitimate opportunity for her. Yeah. Yeah. And apart from the bullshit earlier in this season, they've got a good working relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At Crawley House in the dining room, which I don't know that we've ever seen before. Yeah. I think we've only seen them eating sort of informally in like a right. breakfast nook or whatever. Right, agreed. Which how, that house must be huge. No, like, you know, not by Downton Abbey standards, right, but right. still fairly large. Yeah. Uh, McGee compliments the luncheon, <laughs> and uh, Isabel admits that she's surprised that it uh, it came off well. Right. And uh, then Edith wonders aloud whether she ought to learn how to cook in case it would ever come in handy. And yeah. Mary, Mary's <laughs> response is, "Why?" Yeah. Like, not angry, just, like, confused. Yeah. Like, why? What? Okay. <laughs> Isabel asks Edith about the daily sketch offer and mentions that she knows that Lord Grantham was against it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, 
Edith talks a little bit about it, and then Isabel says she wouldn't want to countermand her father. And the Dowager Countess correctly asks, then why did you bring it up? Yes. But basically, everyone who counts thinks that she should do it. Yeah. Uh, kind yeah. of including McGee now seems that she's come around. She, yes, well, she makes a comment about how, how Robert has values. He adheres to values that no longer have any relevance. Mm-hmm. So uh, she seems to have had quite the uh, feminist awakening after yeah. her, her daughter's death here. Yeah, yeah. Speak of the devil, who should burst in but Lord Grantham? He insists that everyone leave because they're eating whore food. (laughs) Right. He mentions that Ethel had a bastard child and the Dowager Countess apparently didn't know about Charlie, which I thought she was there that day, but maybe not. Maybe not. It's been a while. It's hard to say. But Ethel walks in with the pudding and at that point, Lord Grantham realizes that he should stop screaming at everyone about the, you know, dirty, slutty, disgusting, skanky prostitute that made their food. <laughs> right. Uh, because she's right there. Right. But to be fair, as far as Lord Grantham knows, if they eat food that Ethel serves them, they might get pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so McGee lays down the law and she's like, we're not going anywhere. And, uh, you know, that's the end of the story. And even the Dowager Countess says that it would be a pity to miss such a... A good pudding. It's all over the internet. You'd think I would know by now. Wow. Uh, It would be a shame to miss such a good pudding. And because when uh, when Mickey saw it, she said, "Oh, a Charlotte Russe, yeah, delicious." <laughs> and which, which I looked it up. It looks actually both fairly tasty and simple to make. Oh, so, really? What's yeah. in it? It's uh, it's basically like a cake with uh, layers of of strawberry filling in it. But it seems Ooh. like it's generally made with like pre made cakes, and you mm-hmm. just sort of assemble it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Just pre made sponge cake or whatever, which would be very simple for Ethel to accomplish. Right. Right. So. uh... Lord Grantham then just, he storms out. He can't believe the defiance that he's facing on literally every front at yeah, this point. Yeah, um, And I I wish I knew how I had planned to work this in, but I just have written down the best little whorehouse in Ripon. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what are we up to, like five projects now? <laughs> yeah. Oh, and I also, uh, at one point in this scene... Uh, they they say that there will be scandal, and Isabel points out that there's nobody else there, and Lord Grantham says, oh, I don't know how people find out these things, but they do. And Edith is like, oh, oh, it's me. They they learn it from me. <laughs> I write a letter, and then everyone gets so mad. That's pretty much all she's done. That's all she's accomplished in this series. She's written two letters <laughs> yeah. that made some stuff happen. Right. None of it good for her, apparently. Yeah. We then go back to Murder Prison, which we now learn has the worst guards in the world. Stop talking! Well, it was bad enough that they couldn't get people to stop talking. But now, apparently, when you're in this circle, there's a corner where you can just pull somebody in and have a private moment. Um, with a shank! With a shank. Yes, so there is a shank in play in Murder Prison. But it's in the wrong hands. <laughs> it is in the wrong it's hands. It's in Bates' hands. No, Bates, shank thyself! Yes. He threatens Craig, blah, blah, blah. Moving on. So uh, Carson is talking to Mrs. Hughes, and he's quite angry that the ladies wouldn't leave Ethel's bordello of bad cooking. Uh, but Mrs. Hughes uh, is very happy. She's placid, in fact. <laughs> yes. And, and remarks that she thinks the world is becoming a kinder place. And then, of course, now he can't object to her visiting Crawley House. Right. Since, you know, their boss 
seems to think it's fine. Yes. Uh, he says that he does object. Right. And that Mrs. Hughes disappoints him. And he thought she had standards. And this is the gif from this episode. Yeah. Her walking out the door and just rolling her fucking eyes at him. Yeah. It is beautiful. Yeah, it's so great. Because you wait for her response and she doesn't even say anything. No, walks what could out. you it's possibly say? Genius. Like, it's so dumb. Yeah. I, do, I will say, by the way, I do like, we've seen it much more like, bold and flagrant in these last couple of episodes with the parallels between yeah. upstairs and downstairs. As, oh, yes. Well, I mean, specifically with Carson Grantham. With, yeah, right. as mentioned Right, earlier. as mentioned. And I actually, I, I would think that I would not like it being so much more, a bit more like telegraphed, but I actually have. I, I think it's because uh, the actor who plays Carson is so good. Like, mm, yeah. you know, he doesn't play it as if he knows. You know what I mean? Right. And I don't think right. Bonneville does either. Right. But, well, and, but, but Carson is so much more pragmatic. Like, he has the same belief system. Yeah. And he doesn't, you know, and he thinks it's right, and he thinks it's the only right way to do things, but he just has, you know, he's a servant. He's always known that his will isn't everything. Right. Uh, after dinner, Mary comes into the library to find Lord Grantham and asks him to rejoin everyone in the drawing room. She says that his performance at luncheon didn't help anything and, you know, chastises him for it a bit. He says that he was angry with Isabel for exposing them all to gossip. Uh, and Mary says that he's just angry because the world isn't going his way, not anymore. <clears throat> she then says that he won't win over the christening. He says, not if you're against me. And she says, I'm never against you. You're, it's just, you've lost this one. He asks if Sybil really didn't mind about it. And she says that uh, they all need to remember that she loves Tom. And he says, and this is actually a really good moment with him. And Hugh Bonifil really knocks it out of the park. Yeah. Uh, that he, he keeps forgetting that Sybil is dead and keeps, you know, thinking of something he wants to say to her and then, and then remembering. And Mary asks him to tell it to McGee and in a very like pleading with him to mm-hmm. tell her that but she says she doesn't want to hear it from him this is a very nice scene with the relationship between Mary and Lord Grantham and McGee and Tom and Sybil like mm-hmm. it's all in the room and it's all yeah interesting and, and played I, I like that scene yeah great scene Matthew and Mary uh, go up to the nursery. I wonder where they've converted to a nursery since they yeah, the uh, other one was snatched kinda, the other one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, they go into the makeshift nursery to see Branson and baby Sybil, who has the biggest head I've ever seen on a baby or on an adult. <laughs> oh, right. And I it's, have seen Gracie Bell on Friday Night Lights, okay? <laughs> yeah. I know from big heads. It's partly just in the very first shot. I mean, the whole scene is lit weirdly. And then in the very first shot, just the angle they show the baby at, it just like... The head dominates the screen. She's like one of those aliens from Mars Attack. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so nothing personal, baby Sybil, but you should really talk to the director and get, get yourself <laughs> shot in better angles. Down in the kitchen, mostly, is just baffled that the ladies stayed at Isabel's even after learning Ethel's terrible secret. And Mrs. Hughes says that she thinks they just didn't want to insult Isabel. And Mrs. Hughes reminds him that Jesus ate with Mary Magdalene. <laughs> and... Mosley's like, we don't know that. We don't know that they ate together. We know she washed his feet. And Mrs. Hughes gets a zinger in it and she's like, oh, well, I'll tell Ethel she has something to look forward to. <laughs> or she has a treat to look forward to. <laughs> right. Causing Mosley to shit his pants once again. <laughs> yes. Alfred seems to be about to say something to Ivy, something that both of them would regret, I'm sure. 
Uh, but she is called away by Mrs. Patmore, who has finally realized that she is wearing rouge. That Ivy is, not Mrs. Patmore. Right. Mrs. Patmore doesn't need it. Right. She's a cross and red-faced old woman. Yes, indeed. But Ivy is has not <laughs> has not put in the years to earn that red cheek naturally. Yeah. She's she's purchased it. <laughs> it's against the cook's code. <laughs> it is. Ivy says that all the girls do it now. Uh, Mrs. Patmore doesn't care. No. Yeah. Uh, Jimmy Kent, meanwhile, has started to play the piano, and Anna says to Mrs. Hughes, she's glad they have a piano player in the house again. If you remember, William was the resident piano player, mm-hmm. but he is long dead. Yes. Unless Mrs. Hughes thinks it's too soon for music. But Mrs. Hughes says that Sybil was a bright young thing, which not quite by that definition. Oh, right. A lowercase bright yeah. young thing. And that she'd be glad of some music. Mm-hmm. And she compliments Jimmy's playing, although she does call him James, yes. her Mr. Carson's directive. And Thomas says there's no end to Jimmy's talents <laughs> and creepily massages his neck. Yeah. Uh, O'Brien comes over to them and, and tells Thomas that Lord Grantham needs him for something. So he goes off as the song ends. And then Jimmy Kent continues expressing his discomfort about his personal space. Right. But O'Brien needs to fetch some linen. Yes. Well, and I I was interested by this because Jimmy says that he would tell the police if it would get him to stop. Like, he's he's really reaching the breaking point. And O'Brien had a look in her face that made me wonder if she's wondering if she's going too far. Because the fact is... How would we know if she doesn't ask herself in a mirror? <laughs> well, someday. We can only hope that she... <laughs> she... Next, next time she passes a mirror, this whole thing is over. <laughs> Um, better than this Sarah O'Brien. <laughs> yeah. Well, because there's real consequences. Oh, yeah, there's very serious consequences. That could like, happen. Yeah. So, just a thought on that one. Daisy comes into the now empty servants' hall and sees Alfred, who is attempting to teach himself the foxtrot. But he, he asks Daisy if she knows how to dance the foxtrot, and she says, I think so. Yes, I know. Um, it was just sort of an interesting, her reflexive, not wanting to say uh-huh. that. But then immediately realizing, no, I, I do actually mm-hmm. know this. There's no reason for me to, to say I don't. So, I, yeah, that was that. So she's going to teach him. Anna runs across the lawn to tell Mary and Edith uh, that Mrs. Bartlett has recanted her story and that Bates will, in fact, be coming home after some red tape gets cleared up. Uh, Mary and Edith seem to be hanging out a lot for people who aren't going to get along. But right. I guess there's nobody else around. Yeah, yeah. Mary tells Anna to go and tell Lord Grantham right away. Yeah. So, great. Whatever. Awesome. Moving on. In the library, I think, uh, somewhere upstairs. Yes, the library. Uh, McGee asks Lord Grantham if he has seen the note from the Dowager Countess uh, summoning them to the presence. He says they have, and he says that he does think they have to go. She does not want to hear a lecture on marital harmony, she says. Uh, Lord Grantham says that he does think they have to go, but they don't have to stay long, which to me was kind of saying, listen, if that's what it is, we can, yeah, we can yeah. bail out. He says that she's looking very nice today, and she says, don't try to flirt with me, mm-hmm. which I... Uh, that was that was the only time the other said that I felt that was a little harsh, because he really... I right. think he was... He's just trying to mend any fence. Yeah, yeah. Literally any fence. Yeah. And, you know, she's mm-hmm. just... You know, she's she likes it this way. Right. Then Anna and Edith come in and tell Lord Grantham the, quote, good news about Bates, and he, like everybody else, pretends that he's happy about it. And says that Anna can use the telephone to call Murray. 
Ethel waltzes in downstairs like the brazen hussy she is. <laughs> Carson tries to stop her, but she just completely overrides him and says she's brought some flowers to say thank you to Mrs. Patmore. And he says, oh, well, we have plenty of flowers in the gardens. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> but uh, nobody pays him any mind. Yeah. So it's great. It's the end of the line for Carson. <laughs> Uh, so down in the servants' hall, the dancing lesson has continued, but uh, Jimmy Kent prances in and uh, makes fun of Alfred. He's got a crow. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he makes fun of Alfred's fox-trotting ability and points out in front of Daisy that, of course, he's only learning so as to impress Ivy. Uh, he then starts dancing with Daisy and is markedly superior oh, to Alfred. Oh, he is like, uh He's like water. Just he's beautiful and no, flowing. He he is flying. Look, I understand why Thomas likes him so much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But bad news for him, Carson chooses this moment to walk in and reprimand Jimmy Kent for this behavior at such a somber time and all this sort of thing, and says that he's a disgrace to his livery and that he should take a page out of Alfred's book. Um He was like, What, you want me to smash my face with a frying pan? <laughs> Yeah, uh, so Jimmy Kent continues to be misunderstood. <laughs> yeah, then Carson moves on. Alfred would like to practice some more, but Daisy has finally had her eyes opened and, you know, tells I him... I have work to do! Tells him where he can put his foxtrot. <laughs> yes. Which brings us to our other recurring segment uh, with our own foxtrot fox, Kelly. Uh, guess what? It's time for Fashion Backwards. Hooray! <laughs> So today we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the origin of the foxtrot and other dances that were popularized in the 1920s. Okay. Um, most of this I got via Edwardian Promenade, mm-hmm. uh, which was via Carol Tetton of Dance Publications, if you want more info and some video examples of some of the things we'll be talking about. Mm. And of course, everybody's best friend, uh, Wikipedia. <laughs> yes. So the origin of the name foxtrot comes from the movement of the fox. Positioning of the feet through the dance is like that of a fox. So if you saw a fox's footprints in the snow, mm-hmm. i.e. the Bell and Sebastian song, Fox in the Snow, <laughs> uh, they would be in one line rather than in two, like a dog's oh, okay, tracks okay. would be. And actually, at the beginning of the 20th century, you saw all of these animal dances becoming very, very popular, hmm. uh, which we saw the grizzly bear that right, right. Thomas did. And they were a reaction against the sort of inhibited and restrictive movements of previous dances. Mm-hmm. So people were coming up with new dances faster than dance teachers could, like, you know, <laughs> nail it down <laughs> yeah. and teach it. So, you know, it was, it was, uh, improvised in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. and so ballrooms became sort of playgrounds for grown-ups yeah and again we see these things in the foxtrot but parallel feet replaced turned out feet uh so the steps would move in lines and squares rather than in circles Mm -hmm. and uh basically it sort of was a, a reaction to the mechanism of society at this point. You know, you have vehicles, you're starting to see electric toasters, telephones. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, you know, things started to get a little bit more angular hmm. than circular. Uh, but the animal dances included the foxtrot, the horse trot, the kangaroo hop, the duck waddle, the squirrel, the chicken scratch, the turkey <laughs> trot, and, of course, the grizzly bear. Wow. Now, the foxtrot is the only one. That has lasted through to the present day. It was attributed to a man. Whatever. I do the squirrel all the time. (laughs) Uh, Be that as it may. (laughs) 
I don't know when you're doing this, <laughs> but I'm not home that often. That's so true. you could be doing any number of things. <laughs> So the creator uh, is Harry Fox. So he created this trotting dance to ragtime music in a 1913 Ziegfeld Follies. And most of these dances came out of the ragtime tradition. Mm. And both Vernon Castle, who was like the premier dance teacher at the time, and also dance teacher Betty Lee, credit African-American dancers as the source of the foxtrot. Mm. So, you know, basically... Vernon Castle went to, you know, one of the cotton clubs and saw, you know, African-Americans dancing the foxtrot and Mm -hmm. then stole it in the tradition of white people stealing things uh, (laughs) from ethnic groups. And I mean, at least they give them credit. Yeah. But it's like, oh, I bet you don't let uh, black people come and train with you, Vernon Castle. Probably not. So contemporarily, foxtrot is usually accompanied by big band music, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know. People aren't as into ragtime as they were <laughs> around the turn of the century. Yeah. But from the late teens through the 1940s, the Foxtrot was the most popular fast dance. And the majority of records that were released during this time were, were meant to be danced uh, with Foxtrots. Mm. The Waltz and the Tango were also popular, but they never overtook the Foxtrot. And even the Lindy Hop in the 40s could not beat the Foxtrot. Wow. So the Foxtrot is uh, evergreen, yeah. people. So if you're going to learn a dance... It seems like the foxtrot is a good idea. It's the proven winner. This is obviously much later, but when rock and roll started to happen in the 50s, Mm -hmm. uh, record companies weren't sure how to market for dancers. So Decca Records actually started off labeling its rock and roll releases as foxtrots. Uh, The song Rock Around the Clock Uh by Bill Haley and his Comets was a foxtrot song. Oh, all right. And by some estimates, that particular record uh, sold more than 25 million copies. So it could be considered the biggest selling foxtrot of all time. (laughs) And there were some divisions that happened to the foxtrot. They split it into slow and quick versions. So the slow one was the foxtrot and then the quick step Uh, originally, uh, or, you know, what an original name. (laughs) Right. And then for the slow one, there would have been a difference between the international or English style and the American style. Uh, so the American style was a slow, slow, quick, quick. That was a little faster, but in Britain, it was a little slower. So maybe Our- just they lost a few steps across <laughs> the Atlantic. It's hard to say. USA. USA. <laughs> uh, but those those names are still in use mm. uh, to distinguish different kinds of foxtrots from each other. Mm-hmm. So some of the other dances that were happening at this time, the tango was sort of introduced around the 1880s. Okay. Uh, it was a dance from the brothels of Argentina. If uh, you've ever seen the movie Moulin Rouge, <laughs> I was I didn't realize actually how factually correct the depiction of the tango is in Moulin Rouge because Mm. it is in fact a dance that was from the brothels of Argentina and it was the relationship between a pimp and a prostitute. Mm. So people would travel from Paris to Argentina and then when they came back that was like their you know souvenir. Right. People go to Amsterdam now and they're like (laughs) oh man we went and smoked hash in a coffee house. (laughs) Uh, So as it kind of lived in Paris for a little bit longer. You know, they kind of smoothed it out and it was sort of like this chic thing to do. Mm-hmm. You know, if you knew how to tango, you know, it was a cut above probably your your other animal dancers. <laughs> right. Yeah, and it got it's, really, really... It's good that they came up with an original name for that one because if it had just been called The Whore... <laughs> 
do the whore. That's not how you do a whore. Hey, oh, boom. Uh, so 1913 was the first year that just like the tango took over, mm-hmm. uh, both in the United States and Paris. Uh, people would have tango teas and it was considered an incitement for desire. And I mean, it makes sense when you're sort of, you know, on the brink of this horrible war. Right. Everybody's kind of like, let's get it on. Yeah. Even only symbolically. <laughs> the next one is interesting. Uh, the castle walk which is based on a one step, which basically means one step per beat. Uh-huh. Uh, and it came from the animal dances, but it removed the hopping motion of all the animal dances, and it was just kind of a walk, hence the name. Mm. It was invented by Vernon Castle and his wife, Irene. Uh, she was an American, he was an Englishman, and they had a dance team and a school in America that basically, you know, set the tone. Uh-huh. So, yeah, but I mean, basically, it's really interesting because, you know, you had these dances arising organically and then you had these people who, you know, were kind of artisans and would set down these rules. Mm-hmm. They had they had certain suggestions for what you should and should not do when you're dancing, yeah. such as do not wiggle the shoulders, do not shake the hips, do not twist the body, do not flounce the elbows, do not pump the arms, do not hop glide. Instead, uh, do not hop glide. Instead, avoid low, fantastic and acrobatic dips. That right. just sounds boring. Yeah, that like, sounds like relinking arms if, and you know doing a stroll around the promenade. If you're not flouncing your elbows, you're not really dancing. I know, right? Yeah. Uh, however, they say nothing about. Uh, well, I was gonna say they say nothing about bumping and grinding, but I guess shaking the hips. Yeah. Would uh would fall into that category? Can you drop it like it's hot? I don't see anything that suggests <laughs> otherwise. <laughs> And I, I tried to find some information about dance schools in Britain at the time. Mm-hmm. And I did find some information about the Manchester area okay. where Matthew and Isabel lived for years. So people had – there were a lot of ballrooms and dance halls and dancing schools in Manchester. Uh, the best known one was the Ritz on Whitworth Street West. And just really, really good dancers would go there just to find a partner or you know you could pay a professional partner for six pence dance. Mm. And, you know, usually people, you know, the progression was you'd go to a local dance hall and then you would move up to the Ritz. Right, right. And there's two that are still existing. I don't think the Ritz is still in existence, but there's Finnegan's and Cadman's. Uh, and they are the oldest surviving dance halls in Manchester. All right. So that is what I learned about dancing. Okay. Well, thanks. You're very welcome. <laughs> All right. We're up to the final scene. Yes. Really pushed fashion backwards way, way back. <laughs> we did, yeah. So McGee and Lord Grantham go to the Dower House, and Dr. Clarkson is there. Lord Grantham tries to apologize to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, rather than allowing him to do that, which I think would have been okay. Yeah. Although Dr. Clarkson at this point is probably like, oh, I am so fucking sick of these people. <laughs> right. Uh, he's, you know, tells him that he's done all this research and that Sybil's chances for survival were actually very, very tiny. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she probably would have died. And had they gone ahead with the emergency C-section, you know, there would have been the terror and the pain of this unexpected surgery. Right. right. So, you know, she was probably more comfortable mm-hmm. leading up to her death than she would have been had they gone to the hospital. Mm-hmm. You know, McGee gets really reclamped. Right. And Lord Grantham, once again, spectacularly missing the point, <laughs> goes up to Dr. Clarkson. He's like, oh, well, you admit that uh, Sir Philip Tapsell was right. And Clarkson's like, no, bitch. Did you not hear what I just said? Yeah. 
Uh, well, I just like, cause he says, because he's trying to be cool and professional about it all the time. When he starts talking about Philip Tapsell and he says, you know, unhelpful and I must say arrogant. Mm-hmm. Like he just for a second is about to lose it with this guy. I really want to see Dr. Clarkson in his cups <laughs> talking about, that's another thing about a Philip Tapsell. <laughs> that guy doesn't even tip. <laughs> the valets and ghost places. I'm hungry. <laughs> so Dr. Clarkson, his you know massaging of the truth complete. Mm-hmm. He's like, okay, I did this. Now I'm gonna go. Yeah. And then McGee really starts sobbing, and Lord Grantham starts sobbing away from the camera because yeah. apparently Hugh <laughs> was born without tear ducts. Uh, and they're both weeping, and then the Dowager Countess just kind of turns away to let them have their moment. I'm mm-hmm. like, Dower House, more like Downer House. <laughs> so that's a really depressing place. <laughs> yes. To end this episode. Yeah. Yeah, and it's you know as we said. It's a shame that this got resolved so quickly and kind of neatly. Uh, I would have almost rather seen them draw it out like as a cliffhanger, you know, have yeah. one of them go off yeah. abroad. Yeah. But, uh, you know, that 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 aside, you know, this was a, a good episode. And yeah. And I thought it was a really nice follow up. Yeah. The one before. Because, Agreed. You know, this it, it definitely had the the feeling of sort of a eulogy about it. Even mm-hmm. though there was very little actually said about Sybil, but it's right. just that sort of down, down I, I don't mean downbeat as in being upsetting, but it was just, right. it was very subdued. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think it was wise of Baron Fellows at all to sort of let everybody have this episode mm-hmm. to just sort of grieve and, and kind of readjust to the new status quo. Yeah. And we've, and we've definitely seen. But it also had some forward plot momentum. Well, right. And we've seen Lord Grantham does seem to be in a bit of a new place. Mm-hmm. We'll see how that persists or not. Well, you but... know, Baron Fellows doesn't really like continuity the way that we like continuity. So <laughs> <Right>. maybe... <laughs> it's, it's hard to say, but we can only judge by so far. And yeah, uh, yeah good good work. Yeah, I'm uh, looking forward to the next one. Me too. Well, now it's time for everybody's favorite the Abbey Award. Hooray! Uh, would you like to kick it off, Tom? Sure. Well, uh, we'll start off with Best Evasion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Best Evasion is going to Lord Grantham. Lord Grantham. That's right, because when Branson made the announcement that baby Sybil was going to be Catholic, Lord Grantham evaded blustering uselessly. Which was really nice. It was really nice. He this just, is a really positive Best Evasion it, Award. It is. This is one that he should be proud of. <laughs> uh, best Overbite. Not even a question. Right. Uh, goes to Mr. Travis. <laughs> yes. And you know, weren't we on his side like four episodes ago? Possibly. Well, yeah. I mean, just... I mean, it's not like he's ever had an actual character right. to speak up up to this point. Yeah, but... that's true. What was his... Didn't he do something really dumb like back in season one or something? I don't think so. I just remember him having a conversation with Lord Grantham that annoyed me somehow, but... Mr. Travis did? Yeah. I don't remember that. I just remember he talked to him about uh, the Titanic uh, memorial in Canada or something no, like that. No, it was. I remember him talking in Downton Abbey for some reason. Oh, well, anyway, mm. not important. <laughs> Are you obsessed with Downton Abbey? <laughs> Do you know the answer to this question? If so, we'd like to hear your story. Yeah. Point is, solid overbite. Mm-hmm. Next, we have the Worst Decision Award. And, and for the first time in the history of the Worst Decision Award, there was not a clear runaway winner mm-hmm. in this episode. But we are going to give it 
collectively to Daisy, Ivy, Alfred, Jimmy, and Thomas for being in love with the wrong people. Yeah. Seriously. And this is like, first of all, workplace romances. Like, let Anna right. and Bates be a lesson to us all. <laughs> One of you is going to end up in jail. Yeah. My money is on both Jimmy Kent and Thomas. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, but yes, and, and pretty much all of them have been given ample evidence that they're barking up the wrong tree. And yet they've done nothing about it. Yeah. Well, I'm sure that in, you know, one to five episodes from now, it'll all get resolved. <laughs> The Gibson Girl Award goes to Ivy, both for the way her uh, black morning armband made that dress kind of work. Yeah, it really, it, it was a surprisingly effective touch. Yeah, uh, there. and also for painting herself up with that rouge. Because, <laughs> yeah. look, she didn't necessarily look great, but it's nice that somebody below stairs is making an effort. Here, here. Next, we have the Fashion Backwards Award for Backward Fashion, a.k.a. the Backy. The Backy. <laughs> And that is going to Isabel. We are not, we don't really remember what she wore, but. Uh, we hated it. Yeah. We generally don't like her face. So <laughs> that's what we went with. No, the, the fashion was tough this week just because everybody was just wearing black. And, yeah. Edith looked good at that luncheon in that hat. I'll yeah. say that much, but that's not the backy. Yeah. Yeah. And finally. The Maggie Smith scale of Maggie Smith's, uh, a solid four this week. She yeah. had some good Bon Mott's. Giving pretty sage advice. Yeah. Generally being a bamf. That's right. Uh, but not quite at the pinnacle. Not quite at the pinnacle, but, you know, she she had a goal and she achieved it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so well done, Mags. That's right. And that pretty much wraps it up for this recap this week. Uh, we will definitely see you all next time. Mm-hmm. So until then, up, up yours, yours downstairs. downstairs. Luncheon out.